I've talked about how it's important to have a conversation while you're going live so that when it's spinning and let everyone know we're here and they all come on and the thumbs up. And even then, I'm not so sure that YouTube's got it actually saved to go live yet. But by now, we're probably live, which is why I can say welcome to the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Show with Jonathan and Meredith. He is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal now, and he's not going to be long anyway. So you can wait for his return and look to the sky while you stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, nope, 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 nope. Yes? Hey, Internet. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's not a show. It's not an idea. It's truth. He is risen. That means you're paid for. That's not an idea. That's not a theory. The atonement is not somebody's philosophical dreaming. The God who created the universe demands blood sacrifice in order to what, avenge our treachery. Uh, he demanded the best of us and one who, well, we frankly couldn't provide, but he provided that one himself. Again, you're paid for. And this makes you immortal now. It doesn't feel that way. Christians know that better than everybody else. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel immortal. Except for when you remember to say Alleluia, and on your lips and with your heart in that moment, your knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's coming again to do all is already here. So you're immortal now there, then, in faith. And it won't be long till this, you know, this bleeds out of your body in the return of Jesus Christ, right? He won't be long in his coming. At least not as some count slowness. So there, there are those who would like to think it'd be better if it all just got rolled up right away. But I've got this inkling recently that, that part of the deal, like why is our Lord tarrying all these many years? Think of all the things that could have not happened if Jesus had not returned. We could have avoided what? The Holocaust, right? Uh, if you think the Holocaust was bad, go check out A Hardcore History with Dan Carlin's presentation of the Khans and Genghis Khan's uh, ransacking of Asia and Europe, right? I mean, God, to live in such times. If the Lord had just returned, he could have stopped the sacking of Alexandria. He could have he could have stopped all the madness and wickedness that's been done in the name of mutilation, in the name of various religions of the East that think that women need to be mutilated to keep them holy. He could have stopped all that stuff. But he didn't. Why? Why is our Lord tarrying? And I'm going to tell you, it's because he wants this earth to blossom. It's because he knows that this earth is good soil. It is green soil. The problem is man, and yet he knows that in himself man is fixed. So does that mean that Christians should expect a perfect millennium anytime soon? No, it does not mean that. What it means is that as long as this earth is capable of producing the fruit of lips that confess his name, we should not expect him to return too soon. We should not get ahead of ourselves. We should look every day, pray for it, beg for it, say, absolutely today, Jesus Christ. And then we should remember that he's left us here to blossom. He's left us here to bloom. And we do this again with the words that confess his name. So you are immortal now, He's not going to be long anyway, but in the meantime, the water seals it and the food feeds it. And remembering these things together is the definition of the religion that is no idea and no philosophy, but the actual worship of the one true and holy God, Christianity. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Welcome to the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill. I'll tell you about my week. Here's how I feel right now. I feel defeated. I feel tormented. The desperation of hard times is starting to really 
get to my head in the sense of like, I can realize that part of my emotional struggle isn't just like the angst of my Gen X, <laughs> but is like the, the physical realization that I live in bona fide hard times. Uh, and that these hard times are psychosocial warfare, you know, Cold War era kind of stuff. Still going on, maybe never stop. Don't know. That's part of the problem, right? Yeah. So, like, I'm realizing that, like, that hurts my feelings. <laughs> yeah, I hope they get too loud. Oh, goodness gracious. But, but I got to laugh at it. It does. It does. It hurts my feelings to live in these hard times and, and to come to terms with my body's like, this ain't okay, man. And, uh, you know what? That's okay to feel like it's not okay. It's okay to feel defeated right now because like all the dreams and stories that we've been hoping on in this American life, I mean, they're just being ripped away from us, just ripped away from us, absolutely torn out from underneath our feet. And, and, you know, unless you're not watching, right. But, but those of us who are watching it and we're like, where's it going? Oh no, don't take that please. No, 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 no. Right. And it's just eh, ever more complicated life. Someone said to me, now the, the exceeding complication of daily life. That's, that's exactly right. And meanwhile, you got a bunch of people sleepwalking through it, unaware that their faith is being like sucked out their ear through the back of the head, or maybe it's more through the front as they're looking down at that screen. I mean, it is a time to realize, get ready to be wise, Christian, or perish. Nah. Now, I, I don't necessarily mean your faith will perish, although that also is always a fair warning. I mean, the scripture is just full of the warning. Like, you know, take heed lest you fall and all this. But I really just mean right now, like, like Christian, don't be naive about temporal things. Christian, don't be naive about the planet that killed Jesus and cheered while they did it. Huh? Uh, be ready to be wise or to perish in this life, to have your life and your way of life that you love taken from you by deception and clever ploy. Maybe even where you yourself hand over your freedom, your conscience, your heart, your ability to assemble around the word and sacraments of Jesus Christ. Do you hand it over to what? Well, that'd be on you. I don't know. To perishing. That's what it would be again. That's what it would be. We live in times where if you think you can just walk on this planet like a fool and be fine, you will find out the hard way that that is not how it works. Now, the beautiful thing, son of God, that you are, is that the wisdom of the king who has adopted you into his very body is written for you to absorb on a daily basis with all full assurance that it's yours to apply and believe in. That it's not there to be your final test at the end of the day like they're going to give you if you don't, you know, do well enough. Uh, what was it I saw? A re-education training for those troops who don't want to sign up for the vaccine right away after the mandates. Was that it? Was that it? I, that might be me missing them, you know, putting two, two stories together. The overcomplication is hard to keep in, in line. But hmm. let, me, let me switch here and say this. I mean, I, I feel like I asked this somewhere else online recently too. Like, if you were living in World War One, but no, 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 that's not what I mean. I don't mean that at all. If you were living before World War One, this this is known. Look, historians know this. Okay, so just believe this, right? If you were an average person before World War One, living in Europe, you thought things were fine. You thought things were great. You didn't realize that it was all teetering on a global agreement, which is European at that point mainly. But there were other global powers. I mean, Britain ran the planet, right? Still does, I think. I mean, BBC and all that. Um, but uh, you know they. 
you would have thought that what was set up to be your society and infrastructure couldn't break. It was an ancient empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire itself at the center of this. Uh, was was so ancient to like tie its roots to Constantinople in various ways, or to, or to wish it could, right? To pretend it did, and yet within a year, the horror of what had been unleashed already in their factories uh, was now being seen face to face on fields of battle, wherein again the bloodshed and carnage is beyond imagination. I mean, uh, go listen to hardcore history on the cons, and then go listen to it on World War One, and you know what is it, twenty thousand a day at times? Oh my gosh. It's just it's unbelievable numbers of carnage and bodies just being meat bodies. Just throw the bodies at the at the at the other enemy. Pick up the bodies and throw them. You know, I mean, that's the way that they were playing risk way up on top then, and they're playing risk way up on top now. And this is just it. How would you have known then? How would you have known then that things weren't good? Well, you would have been listening to what was being said on top, and you would realize that nobody believed what they're actually saying. You would start to realize that your leaders are saying things they don't themselves believe. But they're saying it in order to keep the system going. So we're all just kind of hoping if we keep saying the same things, nothing bad will happen. You know what that is? It's called a false religion. That's when you try to worship a God who isn't a God. You keep trying to pray to him the same things, trying to say the same truth, trying to speak the same wisdom that isn't wisdom, and it keeps falling apart. Men always do this, and government always leads to this, and men without Christ will always make this of government. So it should not ever surprise us to see that nations rise and fall. Never surprises to see that. What is surprising is when Christians can't believe nations rise and fall. And when they can't believe that their nation, which has evidently become a wicked evil in many, many ways. I mean, you could I, do I have to list them? I'll just say abortion and leave it there. Dinosaurs. And if you get that, good for you. But abortion, I'll just say abortion and leave it there. We are a wicked nation. And now we're like, wow, what's going on? How could this be? Ha-? Sleepwalking. Sleepwalking. That's what I was sleepwalking. I'm not gonna say I wasn't sleepwalker. I was a sleepwalker. I just I just bummed my head on 2020 really really hard. I'm so thankful for it. Oh man. Okay. So so not to get ahead of ourselves, but there is this. Okay. So I think I can say this. I've said this to several friends. I've said it privately now again. Um, I've said it within my congregation. So I mean, you know, for for the LCMS, here we go. You know, you want to bring me to account, but. Here's, here's where I think the conversation um, really needs to be focused at this point. You know, it's not so much on can we have a convention, although whether or not they'll let us do that in a year is, in my mind, still an open question. You know, we, we can like and pretend that if we all just get our next, what, eighth or twelfth vaccine by then, we can all go to the synodical convention. But I, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know, right? That's, that's really far away. Hmm. Yeah, that's tough, huh? I got to go the other side. So, so here's what I think, though. I think that, like, before, what, a year and a half from now, It'd be good if we all have conversations about where we are right now and try to talk about what we should do right now, right? Rather than just wait until then. And and especially because it seems like and I again I'm I'm reading a lot of different news from a lot of different sources. I hear crazy people on this side, I hear crazy people on this side. I'm crazy in the middle as far as I'm concerned, because I mean what else are you gonna be when you're gonna take a stand on the Bible? So with all that, I, I'm pretty confident that like half of us believe, okay? You with me? Like half of America believes that there is a two-tier global society being put into place based on pharmaceutical control factors, totalitarianism, and likened to communism, although not everyone would call it that. But like half of America thinks that's happening right now. And some of them are just like, well, Trump's the answer. Okay, but like can we all realize what a um, what a strange phenomenon this is really, right? Um, 
that we are losing something that was unique to America. Uh, and that in this happening, there's a bunch of us that don't really like that, right? We like this freedom of religion idea, and we can see that this is already being taken away from us. Okay, so so I think we can say that's for true, right? And for more on that, I would really rather point you to a stronger source than myself. Oh, I, I will. I say stronger, but I'll, I'll publicly stronger. I mean, Doctor Coons. There's no question that the guy is like a super machine, right? So, so you know, in a, in a head-to-head, toe-to-toe, when it's like puns and quips, well, you know, we might have some fun. He'd fall off on those cultural references real fast, right? You know that. So, so anyway, you know, my point being, you know, you want someone who's going to really tell you about where we are in history and trust his read on history. I've got a nice kind of from the hip, but this guy's done the research. This guy's done the research, and his recent talk called "Called to Defend." You can find this by looking at the Brief History of Power podcast. It's number 54. His talk, Called to Defend, given this summer, is by far one of the most important things an LCMS pastor has said in the last 25 or 35 or 40 or 50 years. I mean, I, I can't go back to the Seminex Bible fights, right? But right now, what he said and the questions that were asked by the lady that attended this conference um, is incredibly important. I cannot recommend this highly enough to you. Um, and especially, again, the idea that a primary character of bad government, which is normal in history, right? Bad government is normal in history. If we've had good government for a while, that's amazing. That was unique. And did we just lose it? it well, bad government, here's the characteristic. Again, they don't believe what they say. They don't do what they say. One might even say Saul Alinsky rules for radicals. They finally figured out it works better that way if they just tell you that you're doing what they say they're not doing that they are doing. I mean, you know, complain about election thievery for four years. No one will notice. The point um, The point of the Berlin Wall, Dr. Koontz pointed out in that podcast, Brief History Power number 54, called to defend his talk that he gave this summer is fantastic. Again, you got to listen. Uh, the point of the Berlin Wall, he says, was not to stop people from getting out of East Germany. They didn't mind if a couple people actually escaped East Germany. Um, they didn't mind or escaped East Berlin. Uh, the point was not that they actually had to have everybody be under their control. All they had to do was get the other 85% that had well, kind of like the middle ground apathy to see that there was a division among the people which would create fear among them so that they would what remain docile. right? So just the fact that there are some who would go over a wall and some who would not divided the people who otherwise would have remained united and thereby let their overlords control them. Um, and this is what's happening again right now. Right, people who would otherwise be united are suddenly being divided over gene therapy, effectively, right, um, and eugenics and abortifacient testing and, and various types of pharmaceuticals, all of which come to bear on on the the inoculation question, right? So, um, uh, so I really again I, I can't recommend that talk highly enough because he's going to really uh, lay out for you uh, where we are, and you're going to hear some good good lay thinking, Christian thinking, asking questions, uh, coming back. And again, you know, 50% of us seem to believe, Jonathan Fisker reports the news, uh, a two-tier global world power segregated society is on the way. And I would say that there's like a strong minority of that 
contingent that believes that the alternative future is a medieval survivalist scenario, which I've begun to game, and I don't like it. I pray against it. I, I, but golly, um, the more I pray against it, the more I see how we deserve it and how it would be good for the church. So we'll let you all discuss that uh, on the Discord if you like or whatever. No need to get ahead of ourselves, though. We can't tell the future, and today is today. One thing is certain. More of your efforts is not the answer to the equation. Oh, goodness gracious. I think we got through all of that there. When you realize that we have it in order to share it, and there is always enough. When you are worried that there will not be enough, then there never is. You found this at Mad Christian Saturday Morning Show with Jonathan and Meredith. Lots of questions about actual Bible this morning that we're going to get into. Uh, your questions, Bible's answers, are nonsense here on the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Show with Jonathan and Meredith. <laughs> talking too fast. We'll be back in just a minute. Stick around. Uh oh. <laughs> it's been that kind of a weekend. Oh my goodness. Oh Hold my on. goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't even know what to do. That's right. I don't even. Okay, so we're just going to do one of them. This one. Hey, we're back with Matt Christian Saturday morning chill. Jesus Christ is risen. You are paid for, and he's not going to be long now to make good on that promise of immortality that he has given you. Your Bible questions. Your questions. Bible answers are nonsense. Is this a show? It's a show. I'm so tired of it being a show. We're just going to hang out and talk. Sound good? All right, cool. We're going to be looking at your questions this morning, and the first one is going to be about Luke chapter 4. You got that one for us, Meredith? Okay. Yes. Shep Fisk. Why in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, is Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit? Why did this happen or need to happen for Jesus' ministry? Why did Luke include it? Thanks for your help. Our prayers are with you. And your family, Jules. Thank you very much. Um, the, this is a good question that has a lot of application. That is, I could give you a lot of answers for why, indeed, Jesus, the man, born of Mary, the woman, mortal, right, she, um, capable of dying, he, uh, why it was important as a man for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I can make that argument. But the thing is, the text isn't necessarily making that argument. And you really have to kind of do a little assumpting about the text in order to get there. Now, one thing you'll notice if you listen to me regularly is that I advocate you having or growing or desiring a passing knowledge of the original languages of the Bible. And the reason is, again, because of things like this, honestly, wherein uh, what seems to be in the English can really come across quite differently in the original languages. So uh, if we got, I think do we have Luke 4, 1 in English up there on the screen, right? Where it says, then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, verse 2, be tempted for 40 days. So there it is, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the the other tab there, Meredith, will take us to first uh, to Luke chapter 1, you're going to need to scroll down to verse 67. And I want to compare this with part of the story. It's earlier in the same story, same author. Guy who's going to use this language a lot. Um, uh, is that up on the screen there now? Yeah. I'm getting there. Uh, Luke 67. 1, 67. Zechariah's prophecy. Okay. Where it says, now his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So here we have Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit and Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and this sounds 
like it's the same kind of language, right? Like it's the exact same thing that's happening. And in fact, it is the same root in the Greek. So yeah, uh, Luke intentionally has this pleirothe thing going on, the root, pleirao. Um, the fullness is the idea. The completion of this thing is the idea. Um, he definitely is picking up on this and and shows how the role of the Holy Spirit is to go into and inhabit fallen unbelieving people and then they are no longer fallen unbelieving people they are in fact redeemed believing people carrying about the fallen nature the flesh right uh, with them all the way and that this is to be filled with the holy spirit Uh, luke also will speak about uh, when you are filled with the holy spirit uh, this can be also like being filled with passion right so uh, not necessarily filled with the Spirit, but the idea that one is full of energy or that one is full and wanting to speak, right? So there are times when that language in the Bible, to be filled with the Spirit, just means that now what you know of your Christian faith has come to the forefront of your life and is going to come out of your mouth because it has become important enough to you to speak, okay? So this is the way that, yes, um, uh, Luke seems to be using this word. So whenever somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, whenever the plerao, plerotheo, is being happening with them, the Spirit is inhabiting them in a way that we're going to take notice, they're going to speak the Bible. <laughs> you know, as it's happening, they're going to speak what the Bible is, and they're going to speak that story uh, into being. Okay, so with that said, though, with that said, if you go and you look at the Greek of Luke chapter 1 verse 67. You can't do it now, but I'm going to double check it before I say it before the world here. You know, Kai Zechariah ha pater altu, right? And Zechariah the father of him, epleste epleste numatasagiu kai epprophetusen. You can hear the prophesy there, right? But that epleste, there's your your plerao root. Uh, I don't I don't have memorized the actual real permanent root. There's a lot of different ways it can end, but it's got that play in it every single time. Um, Here though, this is a passive thing being done to him. It's very clear. It's a verb that is being done to him by an outside source. The Holy Spirit is filling him. And again, it's the exact result I mentioned a moment ago. He doesn't speak in tongues. He actually just prophesies, which means to say what the Bible says is true, and he applies it to the moment, which in fact means we sing it forever, which is what we should do, and we often do in our churches with these words. Okay, so there it is, a verb passive being done to him. Now, if we flip back to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, and we look at Jesus, right? Jesus de race numatas hagiu. race, play race. It's not a verb. It's an adjective. Jesus wasn't being filled right now. Jesus has always been full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, as he always is. Now he goes by the Spirit to fight the devil. So why would Luke include this here? Well, to show you what I said before, Jesus as a man is going to have the Holy Spirit of God inhabiting him. And there's, again, a unity at work between the triune persons upon mankind, which is specially seen in the, what, the begetting proceeding relationship that the Son and the Spirit have with each other now in us, so that the Spirit enters us not to show us the Spirit, but to show us Jesus. And we look at Jesus not to see just Jesus, but to know the Father, right? So there's this, that whole thing going on there. And as a man, Jesus participates in this. The only way we can is because he does. 
It is his active, obedient fulfillment of all of this that makes our paltry, weak, and meager, fleshly, complaining prayers what they are, which is glorious and beautiful in his sight. Again, because of him, because of his active filling with the Holy Spirit as a man, always, I mean, golly, he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. How much more filling is going to go on? But if Luke ever does, in a different place, use the phrase, not as an adjective, but as a verb about Jesus, I will still contend you. It just means he got excited and talked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now, when you get excited and talk because the Holy Spirit, well, again, you're going to say things the Bible says. And Jesus, ever being that one, decides, well, then here we go, Satan. Let's rock it, right? Let's go right at this thing. Um, and I mean, I don't know if that's quite how he approached it. He approached it with certainty. I know that is for sure. So I, I think I think that mostly gives that there um, and covers that. Uh, the 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 play rao play rathasai um, root is a really powerful root. I mean, the idea of fulfillment and being filled up is something that is similar to the beatitudinal language of, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, in fact, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say it's, it might be the same root. It's really the same kind of concept. Now, there's this other thing where we have this problem these days where Christianity has been pirated into all manner of like pagan nonsense, frankly. Uh, we have a lot of our language that, uh, you know, well-meaning, but ignorant people have taken and polluted with ideas from the world and they've done it in order to make money usually and there's been a lot of money made in the name of Christianity over the last hundred years in America uh, and where that money has gone well only the IRS knows <laughs> you know? uh, so like I'm like they're watching everything right um, so our need to recapture language that has been taken from us continues to extend. And one of the things that uh, Christians of goodwill everywhere ought to be able to say is that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. It's true. You are. And if you don't think you are, I got the easiest answer in the world. You've heard it before somewhere I know, right? You know what you do is you open the Bible and you pray the Psalms. <laughs> You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Just that moment. You did it. Like You got there. You didn't, I didn't feel good. Like, you know what? You did it. That means the Holy Spirit got you there. <laughs> yeah. My word, this preaching, your ears, you're believing. Open the book. Pray the Psalms. More spirit comes. Yeah. Right away, immediately, like power? No. No, 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 no. Have I told this story? I don't know if I've told this story. I think I've told you this story. I used to love video games. I love video games. They're so great to escape into, and that's why they're bad. Ultimately, well, they twist your mind by pretending reality is different than it is. But I learned something about reality from this video game called Skyrim. Huh? You need a straw. I know, I do. A straw for my coffee. So, like, this game comes out, and it's about, like, this open world where you can go do a bunch of stuff as a warrior. Ancient fantasy-ish, okay? Whatever. And because it's a certain kind of cool computer nerd game, it's the kind of game that computer nerds can make better by adding more parts to it to make it even like more realer and stuff, right? And then it's like you're playing this fake realism more real than anybody else, so it's better or something. Um, but in any case, so I've got this super modded out Skyrim world where you can be anything you want 
and they've so manipulated the growth tree, this is a good thing, so that you don't even really have to like choose what you want to grow in. Just whatever you do, you're going to get better at, um, but it's going to be real. So if you're going to get better at leather just by working on leather, like, you're going to do a lot of leather working, which is like hitting this button over and over again for a long time. I'm getting good at leather. <laughs> um, and so, well, I wasn't going to do like that kind of build. I was going to be a wizard. I was, you know, I was like, I'm going to play this game all the way through. I'd never played all the way through. So get all modded out. I'm going to be a wizard. And I'm going to go get a tower. And I'm going to learn my magic in my wizard tower. Because <laughs> it can take a while. Because you have to like like do this thing with your hand on the screen and make the little puff come. It doesn't do anything. You just sit there and let the bar refill. And it push the button push the button. I, you know i'm not thinking push the button i'm like watching the green the pretty and you know let my mind wander like you do right but I'm, I'm sitting there and like he's he's making this little ball of light in his hand and i'm like wow this is so amazingly real like if you really were a wizard and we're going to become truly a master of the craft this is exactly what you would have to do and i thought i mean it's like almost immediately why am I not doing that with the Bible? I don't think I played again. Not that one. I've tried a couple games since. I don't play much or anything. Yeah, But like, and this is, you know, a, a buddy of mine, Titus, uh, Athanasius the Hammer, if you know him on Discord. Um, you know, he he has a mind uh, unlike many. <laughs> and uh, he's got that, if you know Munchkin, or the, the card game, you know, he's got the Screaming Geek skill set and it's beautiful and he has applied that to um uh lord of the rings so any portion of the story of lord of the rings any character anything you need to know about anything Silmarillion and on he's got it all he's got it all and he and i again we were talking once it's like wow titus what if we did this with the bible what if we nerds rose up and chose a banner that wasn't nerddom but was christianity (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, you think it might mean something if instead of arguing about Solomir and Gwendolhelm, like w- we instead would talk about like Shimei, whose gray head was brought down to the grave early by Solomon. Yeah. You know, uh, w- wouldn't that be something if that's who we were? Um, so I, you know, how did I get onto that from where we were? Uh, oh, that's it. I want to get back to the language of filled by the Spirit. So you are filled by the Spirit. What we want to do when we're filled by the Spirit is speak the Word of God, right? It's going to be something that when you read the Scriptures, speak the Scriptures, it's going to become a process that just recycles in your life, and that's how God made it, right? We gather for Lord's Supper. We gather for – you have a pastor to care for you, to keep you from going off on your own and all this. All right. So being filled with the Spirit then is what that is, right? Now, there are those out there who would tell you that you're not filled with the Spirit unless you do certain other things, Unless the answer is more of you. They'll say, oh, you've only been water baptized? And you're like, what's water baptism? And they're like, it's this thing. And then the Bible not being talked about at all, this thing they make up somewhere. And then they go and say, and so the Bible doesn't say what it says. <laughs> because they want to like make this baptism that isn't baptism, baptism. Like they want a baptism without water in the Bible. Which uh, Jesus mentions a baptism by fire once. He's talking about his crucifixion. It's pretty clear. Like aside from that, uh, what you what you have is like a lot of people getting wet with water, right? So you have people come along and say, "Well, that's that's not the real baptism. You have to have something else." Okay, now here's my point. Um, what you have is people saying that what you have in the Bible isn't enough. So Jesus at the end of Matthew says, "Get wet with the words, keep the words," and they're like, "That's not enough. You got to do more." 
What do you got to do? It doesn't matter. They got a million things they tell you. Once you get in, you're not done. It's a ladder forever. You are filled with the Holy Spirit because Jesus is risen from the dead. And you don't believe that without the Holy Spirit inhabiting you. Does that mean you might be immature still? Yeah, you could still be immature. Is it possible to be full of the Holy Spirit and immature? Who was Samson? Have you ever read about Samson? For pity, I mean, he didn't, I'm not sure he can. I know he didn't keep the Holy Spirit. It was taken from him. It says that. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit that whole time. He's like, Samson, what are you doing? So, So to be full of the Spirit is to be a Christian, is to be in the covenant with faith. To exercise that faith is indeed the call that you have, right? To receive, to grab, to be disciplined with this in the present time. To, to understand how, how powerful this treasure is in the jar of clay that is your flesh now, right? And so in that way, to never let anyone get you or yours to put down their swords again. Eh, to stop opening these Bibles and just getting those words out. Just getting those words out. Get them out, get them out, get them out. It's true. Uh, I think we're ready to go on the next one, yeah? Mm. Filled with the Spirit, you are. Rev Fisk, hello, sir. I am a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and I have, for a while now, been studying Lutheranism from primary sources, because that never seems to happen in my circles. I'm asking about images. What do you think of the Second Council of Nicaea? What do you think of the Orthodox distinction of 3D images and 2D images, such as the rejection of a crucifix, etc.? Thank you, Pastor. Grace and peace to you, your brother, W.C. Dean. So it, it would seem I'm a biased party to the question, right? Given that I carry this everywhere I go, and I'm part of an order of men who pray the Psalms, carry Bibles, and carry crucifixes. So, you know, buyer beware of my answer, I suppose I would say to you. Uh, I'm an idolater according to your theory. You should flee and run. But then again, uh, all Lutherans who are venerating, and then some, adoring even uh, the host of the Lord's Supper, certainly by eating and drinking it, but recognizing that it is their God and King, like that idolatry of bread and wine that only represents Jesus as you ascend to feast on him in heaven, that should keep us from like really being with the hand of fellowship at the end of the day more than this. Now, feel my snark? I hope you did. Uh, we Lutherans and Reform, we have such a great history. <laughs> uh, what we want, what we want, I think, uh, is honest engagement, which is what you're giving, and that's great. So you're coming to me, uh, a Lutheran to get more commentary from a Lutheran on a first source, if I'm understanding your question, right? And the first source that you're talking about isn't me, uh, or say Lutheranism per se. You're asking when the Lutherans and or Reformed and or Wesleyans and or let's just throw the Romans in there, have a conversation about Christianity. Uh, do we understand what the people in the 700s believe? Do we understand what the people in the 500s believe? Do we understand what the people in the 300s believed? If they all believe the same stuff, do we still believe that? which is how the creeds come to be fairly important, right? Because they're the things everyone's always believed. And if you reject them just because you don't like creeds for some random new reason, like that's not going to maybe go well for everybody. Look around a little bit, yeah. So so commentary then on the Second Council of Nicaea uh, and what it has to say about iconoclasm, that is the rejection of images in some way, shape, or form, and how there was at that time uh, recognized a distinction in the East, uh, no, no, the East now makes a distinction between 3D and 2D. I don't know about the distinction then. Um, so, okay, let me before I go off and say something I don't know anything about, why is this not? Oh, that's a picture now. Um, uh, the Second Council of Nicaea is 
something I, I wouldn't call it my forte, right? Right. Um, I'm working with Wikipedia as my first source, and I got a quote that is really worth looking at. And so I'm going to give Meredith a moment to try to find it. It's in the downloads as a photo that I pulled over uh, recently. So you should be able to see it. And if you can get it up on the screen, that's great. It's got this quote from um, uh, sometime during this council, which happened in uh, 787. So this is late, late Roman Empire. Um, uh, Things are collapsing and reassessing and coming together. Their great wide expansion has been broken. Um, And then you have an east-west divide, which has worked pretty well, but the west is getting weaker. Um, And so before I get into the history of it, though, let me me give you kind of the the Lutheran view, as I understand it, of um, creeds and councils, church fathers and the like, and that is that Anything that comes from the past, we receive as tradition. False tradition, you know, heterodox tradition. There's tradition, and and you can learn from all tradition. You can see in tradition those who are approved. You know, this is why um, St. Paul uh, talks about how uh, divisions must come in the church, right, Uh, to show those who are approved. That's 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Um, So our position is that these fights of old— they revealed that kind of golden thread that I was talking about, that Christians in every place believe Christianity. They, they, they hold on to what really is. And so you can find the same thing being taught throughout history. And then again, uh, the Nicene Creed, as we do speak it every week in, in all churches that would call themselves Lutheran, and I would hope anybody that would call themselves Protestant would, would speak that creed um, with great regularity and, and not try to hang on to any type of Western history as Christians uh, without that creed. But, you know, that comes from the first Council of Nicaea, which itself is not without debate. Okay, so you want our position on councils? Here's our position on councils. The Council of Nicaea was followed up by the Council of, I believe, Chalcedon, right? Um, No, 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 yeah, no. It's followed up by the Council of Constantinople, wherein the um, so-called filioque that that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, was affirmed at this second part, right, in the, uh, Constantinople, and yet there were some who were unrepresented. And so to this day, if I'm not mistaken, East and West, part of the divide, in fact, is over this filioque issue, right? Whether or not it actually belongs in the creed. And while some will argue that it's about what it says, others will argue that it's just about how they want the actual ecumenical creed, and that it had to be this one where everybody was at it. Okay, so right there, you see how useless the idea of an ecumenical creed is as an actual ecumenical final thing. I should say ecumenical creed. How useless the idea of an ecumenical council is as a final arbiter that we would all be able to look at this history of those who got together saying we're the only ones leaving something and that we have to take everything that they say. Um, Instead, what we should see is what they were arguing about and how divided they were and then try to ask, how is this similar to where we are today? Because we know that the battle the church faces is always the same battle. It is always against the glory of Christ being replaced with the glory of creation, right? It's, it's always going to be about that. So what was going on at this time that was causing this? I mean, we weren't there again, but the the image that Meredith maybe has found by now, be able to get I've, up there? I found it, but what would you like to actually see? The actual picture or yeah. the okay. If you know the well the, the quote as the oh, sacred the okay. as the sacred and life giving cross. Okay. So here was the theology that they determined for talking about what's acceptable with an image. And I think this is pretty good 
frankly. So, you know, first I said, we're not bound to these councils. But second, this is what they came up with as their answer to, can you have an image set up and bow down before it? All right? Okay. So they say, as the sacred and life-giving cross is everywhere set up as a symbol, so also should the images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the holy angels, as well as those of the saints and other pious and holy men be embodied in the manufacture of sacred vessels, tapestries, vestments, etc., and exhibited on the walls of churches, in the homes, and in all conspicuous places, by the roadside and everywhere, to be revered by all who might see them. For the more they are contemplated, the more they move to fervent memory of their prototypes. Therefore, it is proper to accord to them a fervent and reverent veneration, not, however, the veritable adoration which, according to our faith, belongs to the divine being alone. Worship, right? Worship would be the English word. For the honor accorded to the image passes over to its prototype, and whoever venerate the image venerate in it the reality of what is there represented. So I'll just say that um, before we go to 2D, 3D at all, um, yeah, it's a piece of wood. I, I look at it often. I carry it often. I, I think with it. I use it as an object permanence reminder as well, something that I, you know, if I have emotions that are tough, I'll try to not feel this so they go away. I'll feel this as a place where the pain that's inside can be allowed to have contact with something outside. It's that kind of CPTSD tool. Um, it is only valuable to me in any way, shape, or form because every time I look at it, I'm reminded of Jesus Christ, the actual God-man, incarnate, dead, risen, the guy I preach. What more power does it have? Well, whatever it does, we don't know. Science says none, right? Pagan voodoo says all sorts. We say the hidden things are left to Jesus. Yeah, but we will confess what he has given us. And so again, that creation has been redeemed in the man Jesus and his actual image is the point of that text that was just read and confessed from that council, which is that because creation has been redeemed, so long as the picture that you see accords with who Jesus is and what he's done and points to him as your king and Lord, then it is a picture of him. Yeah, and he knows that. Yeah, and he will use that just as he uses the image of the cross. And anybody who would say otherwise, their point is, well, you've got to take it down the cross too then, don't you? Got to take down the cross then too. And this is where, so if we're going to get into the 3D, 2D distinction, which is, I believe, an East-West Roman, Eastern Orthodox thing that's part of the Great Schism. And, and I, am I the master historian of the Great Schism? No, I just know passing reference to the thing. But, you know, what is it? It's the first Reformation. Uh, is it the Reformation the Lutherans wanted it to be? No, we didn't even exist yet. And even ours wasn't what we wanted it to be. That's part of our problem is discontent, you notice? Yeah, so. <laughs> um, but what it was was the first split of the church. And look at look who split it. We got that question coming up here in a moment. Why is to say that the Pope is the Antichrist, the most unifying thing you can do in all of Christianity? Because look at that, look at that. What's the split really about East and West? But they say, they say, or I've heard it said, because you never know, um, I've heard it said that, again, the 3D image the West adopts and the uh, 2D image is only allowed, the icon is only allowed in the East. And again, I'm not even going to tread into the narrows of why they make that argument. I don't know. I don't care to know. Because again, the council that I'm going to stand with just said, you know, is this based on the fact that we can look at a cross? It says we can look at a cross as an image. 
then anything that tells us about Jesus is, is just the same, right? And the problem is when the story stops telling you about Jesus. So when the, when the statue of St. Joseph isn't telling you about how he was a good father to his son Jesus so that you might be saved by Jesus, and instead he's helping you pray to get out of jail or whatever it is Joseph's patron saint of, I don't know. See, now we've moved across the thing that the council says don't do. And that's where their fight at that time is very obvious, and their fight still remains, right? Forget all the nuances about our intricacies and understand their fights against false worship, Worshipping something that's not Jesus, in Jesus' name, versus worshipping Jesus, in Jesus' name. Hmm? And they want to make sure that nobody's worshipping statues like all them, their pagans, always do. And they also want to make sure that we understand that Christians can make art. Because art is what God has redeemed us to do. And we sing, and we draw, and we write, and we dream about a future that we know is certain in Him. And we have the hope to inspire the world to join us. They can even sing our songs. You know, we would not have Western pop music without Bach. We would not have it. It could not be. He made the kind of music that allowed our civilization to exist, right? Uh, that's a tangent there, tangent there. Uh, back to 2D and 3D, though. Like, this, I got no time for that. It just it, Common sense tells you there's no difference between the 2D and 3D object. You can worship either one of them. Is the television 2D or 3D? You tell me people aren't worshiping those pictures? And, and you know, and, and I think this a lot these days. As I go into homes and I see a wall of kids. And I see no Jesus nowhere. And I go, you know, they're just pictures. They're, they're just images. They're just icons. You know, where is that line of worship? Where is that line of idolatry? And if you think it's as simple as, well, that one's 3D, so we can't do that one. But 2D, we're good. Like, um, you, you missed human nature, I think. You're really just missing human nature on this one. Yeah. Um, so there you go. I don't know if there's a first source Lutheran commentary on this. I can point you to our confessions and the worship of saints in the Augsburg Confession and its apology. It's probably a good place to go. I do believe it mentions images there. Uh, but our classic position is going to be uh, that of the East in that um, uh, since the creation has been redeemed by Christ, we can indeed have images. And then that of the West, you know, 3D is okay because Jesus is 3D. Um, the prototype is the thing that matters. What, what I mean by that? Jesus, the real Jesus is the thing that matters, right? So for example, here, here, look, this is a crucifix, right? Like everyone can agree this is a crucifix. Is is the man on the crucifix black or white? Well, the color's black, okay. And he's actually also kind of carved to look like an African man, probably, I mean, not probably, because he was carved by an African man. So like, does that make this not an acceptable Jesus? No. Well, what if Jesus didn't have long hair? Like he probably didn't, at least not the way that he's drawn having in all the Western stuff, right? Does that make those just not Jesus? Like, are you going to worry about the color of his clothing? The point, <laughs> the point is that all of creation is capable of giving thanksgiving to our Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done in the heart, mouth, and hands of man. And so knowing that, we can see creation as the reminder that it is of the glory of God and tune it to help us sing his praise. And indeed, that would be what any type of prayer focus, whether it's just a bead, <laughs> well, the beads are okay, but not the statues. I mean, really? Like, <laughs> you're, you're, you live in creation. You're going to have created things tied to worship. The question is, can you worship without them? No. If I lose my crucifix, can I still pray? That's a fun one. 
Test yourself with that one. Try it sometime. Because if you if you get used to having a prayer focus, yeah, yeah, you're gonna miss it. Oh, I gotta go find that before I can pray. Wait a minute, do I? Do I have to? Oh no, I don't. Okay, but then it still worked, didn't it? Now in teaching you not to rely on it, and that's where it's really about the fight within your heart and the words that come out of your mouth more than whether or not you got the right rules from the 800s. You follow me? I'm talking right to you. Ask the question, right? I'm glad you're doing the first source research. I'm so thankful you pointed me to that little text because that's really a nice summary of why crucifixes are cool. (laughs) So I'd say without adopting the entire second Nicene Ecumenical Council, I'll I'll, I'll give a hearty hey-ho to that little bit I quoted. Absolutely. Good stuff. On board. Antichrist coming our way, right? I don't know. Let's find out. Okay, then. Dear Pastor Fisk, thank you for your rich outpouring of content. The Bible has been so misused against me that I couldn't own one or touch one for many years without feeling great pain. However, through your ministry, along with Pastor Wolfmuller, I have been encouraged to move past all that and get into the Word again. I greatly regret the lost time that the locusts have eaten, but... Through Sons of Solomon, the lectionary, and other passages I pick up from your YouTubes, my heart has been greatly comforted and strengthened. I was wondering if you could comment on John 6, which I have found to be very beautiful, especially on what Jesus' words mean when he says, Eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. Does this refer to the Lord's Supper only, or does it have a broader meaning? Once again, grateful thanks for your ministry, Sidewinder. Awesome. That's a really good question for the direction to go, but thank you for all the stuff you said before that as well. Um, in fact, uh, would you go ahead and we're going to go to John 6 as the main thing, but would you um, just read uh, that first two sentences again for me? Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, first two. Yeah. The Bible has been so misused against me that I couldn't uh, own one yeah. or touch one for yeah. many years without feeling great pain. Okay. So th- this is a fascinating thing that you confess. And I think I want to talk about it because I think others can learn from it. Um, and I'm curious, you know, private channel, uh, by great pain, what you mean. I'm kind of assuming, though, you mean soul angst more than physical pain. Um, I've heard stories of physical pain, but stories are stories, you know. So w- what I want to share, though, here is how much this is what all of us should learn to diagnose is personal torment. Like, you don't have to have a demon outside of you for your flesh to decide to be a putz and just throw a fit and not let you do what you want to do. Romans 7 is pretty clear about that. I'm going to contend that in our day and age, trying to talk about your flesh as if it's the only enemy in the room doesn't help a lot. And so to recognize that your flesh has allies in powers and principalities, this present darkness, this veil of tears that's outside of you, and that those allies are your enemy, is a tremendously potent thing to do. It can be used as a foil, uh, a shield even, or I should put it this way, it's a reason to lift your shield. Yeah, When you feel like you're by yourself, you're like, well, it's just me and God, he's waiting for me. When there's demons in the room, it's a little easier to be like, get your shield out, man. <laughs> Pick up that sword. You know, that kind of thing. Okay, so what I want everyone to learn to do is to diagnose their hesitancy to read the Bible or touch the Bible or pick up the Bible as the sign of torment. 
as the sign that somewhere in the last 48 hours, you started listening to a story that you shouldn't have listened to. And I don't know how it happened in your life. I don't know where it happened. Maybe it was just a song on the radio, right? But however it went, it triggered something deep inside of you that's a pattern of history, a pattern of thinking programmed even into you by years and years of absorbing all of their nonsense. And so now suddenly you're living with a heart worldview that thinks the Bible isn't going to make you feel better. And in fact, you can't stand to get to it. Or in fact, they cause you pain as you come near it in your heart yeah, because your flesh is allied to them. Now, uh, the only solution to this is to diagnose what it is. That this is the devil trying to stop you from reading the Bible. <laughs> and that as a Christian, you've been called to read the Bible. And it is a matter of discipline. It's not a matter of choice. It's not even, when you get up in the morning, do you have to like choose to eat? right? Or do it at some point you just eat. I'm going to eat now. Where is the food? And it's where you like, I'm like, you know, I, I finally end up in front of the fridge looking for stuff, right? Because I didn't just choose to eat when I should have. But nonetheless, eventually what happens? You, you go and you find food, okay? Well, what happens as a Christian is you starve if you don't eat. You just starve. Huh? And so I'm very thankful to hear that your experience of having evil things steal from you the rest of owning the scriptures as your portal to heaven, uh, as your words of divinity, uh, as the sanctuary wherein your heart and mind and spirit can rest away from the trials and accusations of those who are of this age and of this age alone. I'm so thankful that this has begun to be a, a light in your darkness. And, you know, I, I understand what you say because I face the same problem with some regularity. You know, it, it's the strangest, strangest thing. Um, uh, and yet I also know that the more that I believe that struggle is the sign that I should open up the Bible all the more, uh, the more, well, the more that seems just be the answer. <laughs> it seems to be the answer to walking forward through the day. And like I opened with today, I mean, today, goodness gracious, if you feel defeated, you're not like in bad company. If you think things look bad and we can't make it, like you're kind of on the normal par guess, I think, right now. Um, you know, only only people who are living in complete um, ignorance of how fragile the whole situation is right now cannot be feeling some level of human trepidation and anxiety as a result of, of all of this. And so again, um, what we've been trained to do is sort of panic and reach for the temporal solution to our emotions, right? You know, we're consumers. What can I consume to feel better because I'm scared today because here's more news that they gaslit us with again, right? Um, and instead, uh, learning to say, yeah, that's exactly what's wrong. I feel that wrong. Now, where's my Psalter? And you get done, and you still feel weak, but you you know you're not alone. Right? You know you're not alone. And so, yeah, keep keep on it. What was it? Sidewinder? It's a great name, Sidewinder. So, um, John chapter 6. We're going to pick up uh, with verse 49, I think. Is that where we got? I think I left it there for you to find about that spot. Oh, and I thought I'd go from the Greek, but now I looked at it. I'm like, I don't know. Seems a little difficult. 49. No, that's not where I wanted to go from. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, it must be where I want to go from. Uh-huh. 53. Uh, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Yeah, that's where we're going to get to. I want to lead into it, though. Um, and so, why don't you scroll back up to uh, verse 41. 
let's go from there. So Jesus has already been talking, and he has just claimed that everyone who sees and believes in him will have everlasting life, and he will raise him up on the last day, right? So let's get like the whole Christianity side out of the way. Like if you don't know about Christianity, here's the thing. Like Jesus is a man who died and rose again, and if you believe that, then he'll raise you up in the last day. It's pretty awesome, period. Is it? Promise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just more to add to the promise, and it's a big fight because the world's against us and the devil's against us. But like, that's it, right? So he just said that. He's like, hey, and here's the gospel, everybody. And what happens? 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So he had made this claim earlier, comparing himself to the food he had just distributed to the people. He just fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread, a few fish. Um, Miracle. He's just done this, and they want more. And he says, well, what you really need is not more bread. What you really need is me. I'm the bread God really wants you to have. And they're like, he said that wrong. The Messiah shouldn't talk like that. If he's the Messiah, he would have said it differently. And so that's that's where they're going to go out. They complain. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? I mean, that's that's pretty low ball right there. That's like he's his parents are married, kids. His parents are married. Don't listen to him. He's a liar, right? That, that's kind of their theology, too. Uh, and so how then is it that he says, I have come down from heaven, right? Since he's a bastard. We're going to get banned, YouTube. Um, that's what it means. Parents aren't married. Uh, man. Uh, since he is that, how can he possibly say that he's the Messiah? We know the Messiah has to be the son of David, all this kind of stuff. So here's Jesus' answer, verse 43. Uh, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The absolute brass of Jesus is really something. Like, here he is saying that I'm here to do all of this for you. I'm here to be the one who serves you, saves you, loves you. And he's in this big crowd and he sees that the powerful people in the crowd begin to talk to other people around them about how he doesn't have the right to say these things. And they begin to insinuate problems with his moral character. Now, what most people would do at this point, most of our people, 21st century people would do, is we'd start trying to win the crowd over. That's what I'd do. I'd start looking at the people who are most upset. I'd start seeing if I could get them to pay attention and come to terms with what I've been trying to say. Now, Jesus just doesn't do that. He just doesn't do that. Like, if you're shaking your head no while he's preaching, he just looks at you and talks to you then. And not in such a way that's like, hey, you got to believe with me. It's like, oh, did you want to leave? <laughs> I mean, he just really, he lays into them. Just so y'all know, all you out there in the crowd who are saying, I might not be who I say I am, well, only the Father can actually pull anyone to me. So all that means is you're not chosen by the Father. So feel free to go ahead and say that if you like that. If that's the designation you want to adopt for yourself, that you're unchosen by the Father, you go for that. Um, because, uh, you know, the ones who are sent to me, I'll raise up on the last day. Uh, Verse 45, he says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God, and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So now he's saying, I'm God, I'm here to teach you. If you know and have been taught by the Father who sent Moses, you're going to know and be taught by the Son who is me, right? Uh, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. That'd be me, Jesus, as I'm talking. So he's making some bold claims here. Oh, you're bothered that I said that I, the Messiah, am more important than the bread. And the real answer to salvation God sent isn't bread, but is me, the real Messiah. Well, let me just tell you, you realize I'm God, right? 
Like, like he just he doesn't pull back at all. Uh, he had, uh, he has seen the Father as himself. Uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, here's where we want to really understand that his declaration has been and continues to be from faith his for faith yours. His objective righteous faith as a man in Jesus is by imputation declared to you and then by subjective experience, Holy Spirit filled up in you, right? So that believing in him is everlasting life. Now, that is the first and foremost cognizant experience that we have as Christians is to know I believe in Jesus and to have that kind of language be something that matters to us, okay? So, um, the one who believes in him has everlasting life and now he brings back the bread. I am the bread of life. So just like he has amplified everything he said, he's going to amplify here as well. So your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This, his body, he's pointing at himself, me, me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, again, up to this point, he still probably is just talking like what we might American style call metaphorical, as if metaphors don't mean things or something. But but he is certainly not instituting the Lord's Supper at this point. He's just saying, now, you know, you didn't think I could say what I could say. You thought it was weird how I said it. So here, first, I'm God. Second, I'm going to say it more. <laughs> I'm going to say it louder. And that I am, in fact, the bread that really matters. And you have to eat me as the bread. Now, again, he could just mean believe in me at this point, And to some extent, that's all he does mean. But here's the problem, right? They're going to argue. They're going to argue. Then the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? Um, and I, I, I must admit that the idea of Jesus walking around peeling off zombie-esque layers of body to hand you, to chew on. Like, if that's what they were thinking, Capernetic style, uh, they they were wrong, right? But why were they wrong? Why were they thinking wrong? Was it because Jesus didn't say enough or is it because they didn't trust Jesus? It's because they didn't trust Jesus to have a good way of doing what he said he was going to do. But again, he's going to amplify and lift up this now. So you think it's difficult for me to say that you have to eat me as bread, and you think that's too much of a metaphor to believe in. Just trust me on it that I got it figured out later. Well, then watch this one now, right? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. I mean, he could have said, I'm talking metaphorically about faith. But he didn't. He said, since you think it's impossible and I can't do it, I'll have you know it's been the plan from the beginning. Hello, Melchizedek. Yeah, bread and wine. It's been the plan from the beginning, and you're going to have to eat my flesh, and you're going to have to drink my blood. And I actually really mean it, because the only way you rise again is you get my DNA. You get my flesh and blood. You get my body instead of yours. You need a second Adam. You've got to be tied to me. And this isn't just juju and dreams. This is real, creational, regenerational, in time, in history, incarnational reality. We call it a sacrament because that just means a mystery. It doesn't make sense. How does bread and wine do such great things? It's not just bread and wine, but Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. Right? Now, that's later when he says that, but here he's like, that's what's going to happen. And that if that doesn't happen, well, then you're not in Christianity. I got a whole book about this called Without Flesh. And if you don't have the Lord's Supper ever, you're not in Christianity. If you don't have baptism ever, you're not in Christianity. 
No. If you don't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they're God, as one God, you're, you're not in Christianity. There's just a few places where, like, verbally you can throw yourself out that fast. Just a few places. You know, curse Jesus. I mean, that would do it. You know. uh, so, you will eat my flesh. You will drink my blood. He amplifies the language to make it clear that they're supposed to be confused since they don't believe it's possible for him to do what he says he's doing. Now, what Lutherans have tended to do is listen to Luther arguing against Calvin on this matter and say, therefore, this isn't at all about the Lord's Supper. I think that's a bit overzealous myself. Um, uh, th- what this is now is alluding to the Lord's Supper. And John, writing much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wherein his readers would have all probably had experience with one of those synoptic gospels, would have known of the supper and heard the overtones. So a believer is always going to hear overtones of the Lord's Supper here. And for this reason, yeah, by all means, understand that when he says you must eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, he means the Lord's Supper for you now. That's where it happens today. That's how this Bible means it to be understood today, right? That you should eat the flesh and blood of the Son of God um, and that this will be the promise of him to raise you up in the last day. His flesh is food indeed. Yeah, that bread's right there. His blood is drink indeed. Yeah, that wine's right there. And he who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, I in him. That's the promise, you know. Now this true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ will strengthen you in the one true faith and preserve you unto life everlasting. It's all about the promise. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So, Again, the the inner Lutheran debate, where we like to yell at each other about nuances, um, is all about whether or not Jesus had already instituted the supper. And since he clearly had not historically, this can't be about the Lord's supper, right? And like like good historians. Yes. Um, but the other side of it is that John again is writing to the Christian community in Ephesus. 70 years later with a whole lot of stuff that's happened knowing he's going to die sometime in the future has he been to Patmos or not yet is pretty close right um, and, and and his implication here again is that the thing the church can't forget is that if we don't eat his flesh and drink his blood there's no life in us as a body at all that if we don't have that heartbeat of the Lord's Supper binding us together well, then we don't have Jesus binding us together at all. And again, if, you, if all you've got is a symbol of Jesus' resurrection and a symbol of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, and a symbol of Jesus being the vine and the branches for you, well, then again, all you've got is a symbol of your salvation. Uh, but again, what he declares is that he will give you the actual himself, the actual new man, and that you will eat and drink this in a way that frees you, not binds you, in a way that does not confuse you, but increases your trust. Indeed, the bread, the wine remain bread and wine, and yet they also are what he says they are which is body and blood, the same crucified, the same resurrected, the same ascended, the same reigning, the same joining with you. So when the Father looks from heaven and sees you, he sees Jesus, just like they said in Sunday school. Just like they said in Sunday school. Let's take a little break. Do you mind that, my love? And then we will Not a bit. We will come right on back. Got a lot more questions coming your way. Bible Answers Our Nonsense here on the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Show with Jonathan and Meredith. Stick around. Oh, that didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it either. <laughs> I didn't do it. Okay, so start singing. Sing the song. It's me. So, yeah, now it's you. Now it's me. Now it's me. <laughs> so if they suppress all other views, how can you check on what they said? That's the question that um, I hear secular people asking. You know, liberals. They were liberals. I think Bill Maher, I think, uh, had a nice bit recently about this. Uh, if, if the news is being controlled by those who say we're the only source of news, how do you know 
whether what they're saying is true or not. And that again becomes the challenge that we've had in the whole post 2020 thing, wherein big media has definitely closed down the flow of information with regards to open conversation on what is coronavirus, what is COVID, uh, how does it impact us, uh, what's going on around us uh, because of that, um, and then also you know the American government's role in all of this. Now, so again, I, you know, whatever. I'm a Lutheran pastor. What can I do about it? I can ask, if they suppress all of their views, how can you check on their views? Well, this is just it. You have to start looking for ways to check. And you're watching the show because you know there's more online than there is on TV. Yeah. Uh, but remember, there's a lot of people sleepwalking out there also. And they think that their source is the only source. I listened to the, the Not Conformed podcast somebody recommended on Discord recently. And they played a quote. I think it was from New Zealand. And it was a government office from New Zealand that had this you know, video that was playing. And it's, it literally says, we are your only source of truth. You need trust no one but us. Like, you have this like dystopic woman's voice, you know, Halo style, not Halo, um, Half-Life style, uh, Portal style. And, and we are your only source of truth. You need trust no one besides us. I mean, it's just the wickedness of it all. Uh, what... What a real honest neighbor wants is for you to have access to all the knowledge you can because an honest neighbor knows that if you both know the full amount of knowledge, you'll both be best equipped to help each other in the long run. But a neighbor who wants to live far away and just take from you and never be held accountable, well, that neighbor doesn't want you to know what that neighbor knows. So see, knowledge is power. Information is power. That's the age we live in right now. And, and make no mistake, if you are only listening to one source and it's me, that's a mistake too. That's a mistake too. Uh, what do we got here? We got more Bible. I want more Bible. I know we got James somewhere, but something else first. Okay, so it Antichrist. says, oh, this is a two-pager. Two-pager. <laughs> Pastor Fisk, I currently serve on church council at my local LCMS congregation. For a decade, we've had trouble with filling positions on different boards and church officers. Many people get burned out in these positions as they are balancing their work, family, and other obligations on top of their church responsibilities. Five years ago, we reduced the number of council and positions. We got rid of the fluff for each position to make it the bare minimum to reduce time spent for the position and made every position a one-year term. To our surprise, there has been no increase in volunteerism, and we are seriously considering outsourcing some positions. A member of ours mentioned that in the 1950s, there was a high expectation that to be a good Lutheran, you need to volunteer in church. Present-day Lutherans understand there are other opportunities for good works outside the church. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on this. What would you recommend we do to increase volunteerism? Okay, so I'm going to get the other page. Sure, sure, sure. And if you want to sing a song while that happens. <laughs> okay, that song was really quiet. All right, being an ex-evangelical and talking with my Baptist, Presbyterian, and Reformed friends, I would say it's a value of the church to volunteer, assist your brothers and sisters, Serve the Lord as he works faith in the hearts of his people through the word. I can say it doesn't seem to be a value in our church. Jacob. There's a lot 
that I want to say about this because um, it touches on a number of different categories. And um, I don't think in any way I'll be able to really uh, encapsulate a good answer because I, I feel like there's – this is like the platform <laughs> for something. Um, but, I mean, check it out. When you, when you find a pyramid scheme, you're really excited because you have this like special thing that no one else has. And you got access to it. You just got to pay. And if you pay in, then over time it's going to pay you. Right. So if you if you are good at the discipline you're told to follow, then you're supposed to go up the pyramid and have what a, a good result. Now, the problem with the pyramid scheme is then when you get you know a ways up that pyramid, uh, it's possible you realize that you're just losing money, and that the guy above you is just making money. He's losing money too. Um, or he's losing influence, life, spirit, all that. One way or the other, the pyramid isn't pulling you up. The pyramid's uh, sucking you dry. Now, I think you can compare most current institutions and life within them to pyramid schemes now, even though most of them were not started as pyramid schemes. But because now most institutions' primary goal is to not close. Not to do what they were created to do, but to not close. That means most of them want you to join in order to keep them open. And this is where it becomes very difficult to get 21st century millennials to volunteer (laughs) at a church. (laughs) I mean, it's like you want your potluck and quilting club to be manned by all the 20-year-olds after they went drinking last night. I mean, what, what do you think you raise these kids to do? I mean, that's number one. But then there's something about this because I don't think that if a person commits themselves to the church of Jesus Christ and the holy life of his saints, what it means to be a people set apart, that later on after disciplining yourself with that word and with that life, you find you've just been volunteering to support some feudal collapsing beast of a thing that was effectively... Uh, uh, an insurance plan. Mm. No close to home, maybe there, but you're far more likely to commit yourself to something to discipline yourself when it's not going to be cleaning somebody else's club or um, joining a archaic system of governance that is meant to keep people who hate each other from being able to steal from each other in the club. Uh, and that it has a lot of rules and regulations that have been co-merged with and mixed with bad ideas and tactics such as how to do this and how to do that and every summer do this and every fall do that. And your volunteer who's just they're like a new Lutheran, they kind of want to like tell their friends about how Jesus is risen and you you got them doing paperwork. Come do paperwork or will you, will you just kind of clean the whole church? The guy who's been doing it for 15 years wants to retire. Can you just take over that? So yeah, I, th- I think outsourcing real jobs is is what the church ought to do if it's honest with itself. I'm not opposed to volunteers. Don't don't get me wrong. I think volunteering is important. It's it's seeing what the volunteer is. That the volunteer is someone who shows up for the barn raising and enjoys the potluck. 
the volunteer is not someone who uh, comes in every week and opens up, sets up coffee, um, greets, uh, cleans up afterwards. You know, a volunteer alone doesn't do all of that. Can you have a community in which everybody's hooked into some form of this is our programmatic system and we all play a hand in it? Yes, absolutely. What's yours? What's it for? Just to be there and get more people to join yours? That's called a pyramid scheme. Yeah. And so even if your church is really a church in the sanctuary, if you're still running the organization like a pyramid scheme, please don't expect people to want to join it. They've been burned too much. They don't got enough time as it is. And now you want them to give them a month, I mean, a night or two a month to just show up and like have people shoot their ideas down and not give them the authority to fix the problems that they want to complain about. And then say, why aren't there any young people here? And you're like the one that's sitting there and they won't let you do anything. I mean, that's the problem. Okay. And this is such a wide cultural thing. I was talking to someone else last night about this and I, I don't know. I'm probably going to offend some people, but whatever, whatever. In most histories, in most generations, there's three generations. Grandparents, parents, kids. And then we start over. And sometimes you'll have a great-grandparent overlap with the babies, something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't last long. You, you really only have this group moving through history, and they shift, right? And at some point, the group that is old passes to the group that is young on behalf of the group that is younger still, right? The 65-year-old lets the 40-year-old worry about the 16-year-old, somewhere in there, something like that, okay? Now, what's happened to us in the last generation is something unprecedented so far as I know. Um, you know, uh, penicillin had a lot to do with it. Um, antiseptic had a lot to do with it. Uh, inoculations, I don't, I don't think they had as much to do with it. Maybe a little, but not as much. Realizing that we were killing ourselves with certain fertilizers and whatnot, that, it helped when we stopped doing that. Um, but in any case, so we've extended our, our life expectancy. So now here, we're living more like this in this really weird unbalanced time. Wherein you have, you know, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, they're both chilling up here, way up at the top. You know, and then you got uh, Prince Charles, you know, the Queen's up here, and Prince Charles is like, man, this stuff's never going to be king. I'm not going to be sad. I was the last king. I'm not the king. And you got, you got like, you know, his kids down here, right? Um, which is like me, okay? Right? 43. <laughs> and, and then you got like this next generation that's the actual kids right now. Because these kids aren't kids. These kids are adults with babies. All right. So what has happened again is this generation has never really relinquished the reins of influence. Forget like one person somewhere. Think the influence of the global zeitgeist right now. This group has never really passed the spirit, passed the heart of the earth to this group. And it seems to be that they're just going to get skipped because this group seems to be a lot more interested. In fact, who's Pamela Harris a member of? She's right here with us. Check that out. Right? So we have this rebalancing that's going to take place over the next generation. The real question I have, uh, biblically speaking, is does God let us go with four every generation from now to the end of the world, or is he going to pop this thing back down? Um, and the way he would do that would be, I don't know, some like catastrophic accident with gene therapy or something. I, you know, I, I don't know, a war. He could do that lots of different ways. But, okay, so now let's apply this to our question about volunteers in the church. So you got a bunch of people up here running it with a bunch of people here missing and a bunch of people here um, also missing and not able to really be listened to in terms of what we need to do by those up here who want to keep 
what they think is right going. And these ones are saying, but these guys aren't here at all right now. There's going to be no church. We need to at least care about our kids we're going to start to have who will be this next group down. And we're going to miss another one in here, right? And you come through all of that in 50 years um, without any type of real problems with gene, gene therapy. And we still, as Christians, are like starting over a little bit here, right? community-wise. Um, because the institutions that this older generation have tied everything to, those seem to be collapsing. And the more they won't let go of those things, again, the more they collapse so that what we actually are going to receive from them is hardly what they received. I mean, again, what, what empire did the Queen of England take from her father? Just think about that. Just think about that. What's going to be given to who? Anyone. Where? Right? So apply this again fractally down to your congregation and start realizing that like, <laughs> before you need volunteers, you need some Christians. And if the people in your pew aren't volunteering, it isn't because they're not Christians, but it's because they don't feel like Christians at church. It doesn't make them feel good to be there. They don't want to volunteer. They want to go home. They want to check in and check out. Well, this, who cares if they volunteer then? We have to do something about the spiritual soup. Nah? Uh, we have to be, be hungry. Because a hungry Christian will be after what needs to be done in the church. Now again, part of the problem is we want a bunch of volunteers to do a bunch of stuff that maybe doesn't need to be done. My boy Titus, again, I mentioned him twice now. He's locally here. Moved here to help in Rockford. Would you like to help? Would you like to join a community that wants to be a Christian community and help build in this place? Um, by all means, contact us and, and you know, come take a visit. Um, uh, uh, talk to Titus and he'll, he'll give you a phone call because he's, he'll tell you why he moved here. Right? He summarized it really well the other night and I just, I don't think I can even say it as well as he did that it would seem we so valued our belief in our institutions as the West that we're built with Christianity. We so valued them that we've declared them more valuable than God. And I think without question, that's pretty, pretty obvious. And so now, because this is the way the Bible always works, God is grace bound to tear them down unless we trust in them. And once he starts tearing down, you know, Moloch statues, he doesn't usually like allow you to keep a few. Huh? Uh, he makes it very clear uh, where the wrath is. So what does that mean for you? It means as Christians gather in Christian communities, start talking to people about the Bible that you believe with them believing it and trust that that is the way to survive the end of the world. <laughs> that is the way to survive any kind of collapse, right? Uh, that is the way to bind yourselves together as a people. And that absolutely is the way to get someone interested in volunteering for your church and what your church needs done because they'll understand that when they're there, they hear the Bible. They talk the Bible. And so why would we not want to be here? And Oh, did you need me to pick that up? No problem. But if it's just entertainment, nobody volunteers at the AMC. Somebody volunteers at the AMC. Expectations. You know, what, what are you expecting of people? Um, I heard a really great talk. Uh, no, I didn't. I heard the first part of a great talk. I hope to hear more by uh, Scott Bruzek. He's pastor at St. John Wheaton. And one of the first things he says, their new member class, they do it once a year. And um, he says, one of the first things you'll notice about us as a church is that we ask more of you than other churches do. And when you become a member, you will have to get involved. But part of that is them recognizing that not everyone's going to join that level of membership. 
And so they have some level of communicant membership that's different than their voting membership or their, you know, their high-end um, uh, commitment class like that. But it really got me thinking again. Like, there, there should be expectations on Christians. The church does have a right to demand certain disciplines of you. But are those disciplines things like counting money? Or are all those disciplines things like reading the Psalms every day? And again, I would contend to you that until we've gotten back to what matters, all the rest of it, we're just like whitewashing the tomb while it collapses. Don't expect your 501c3 to make it. If the dollar doesn't make it, who knows what happens? And that's a definite possibility. You don't think it's a possibility that we live in a history where the dollar doesn't make it sometime? Really? I mean, have you read every, anything? You know, This American dream, this American dream, it's time to wake up. Yeah, time to wake up. Let's move on from that one. The joy of that personal ending. I, darkness. And things. All right. How do I make my daughter, who is 23, understand that living with her lover outside of marriage is not pleasing to the Lord? I already told her he is not welcome in our home. Ooh. Please advise. Thank you, Linda. How do you make your child understand anything. I think the question is, um, what are the tactics for when your child does not understand what you're trying to say a little more and how do you make them understand? They just might not. Um, they're their own person. And that's kind of the, the biggest thing to learn. You cannot control their, their thoughts. And once they're past what, six, eight, 12, there's a certain point of no return. And certainly 18, there's another one, probably 16, somewhere in there. Um, it's like the puberty point of no return, and then there's like the 16, I'm pubertized point of no return. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and and at those points, certain things in terms of their thinking process are in place for now. Like as they get older, they can realize and come to terms with stuff, but there's some stuff that's just programmed now. Like, And they just got to operate with that program for a bit. And uh, uh, so learning that as a parent um, – Wow, easier said than done. The theory makes sense, right? In real time, you're like, oh, my child can't understand what I'm going to say for another 10 years. I will make a note. (laughs) Tickler file. (laughs) So what are your thoughts? I think you got plenty to add on this one here, my friend. Well, I... Are you on camera? I am not on camera. Get yourself on camera, my love. Oh, that is a grand adventure. Let's see if I can do this. Shift and then click the picture. You'll do it. It's been... Oh, where did I go? I'm behind the question. Yeah. Oh, I have to scooch my little self over here. Okay, so um, first of all, I guess what worries me, I mean, it's it's a completely logical concern mm-hmm. that she has, right? Oh, I mean, adultery is something that yes. we would be very disappointed with our children about. Um, and, yeah. um, and so her her concern is valid. And, or Linda, your concern is valid and your desire to help your daughter see her folly is true and real. Um, my concern, however, is the tactic of saying that somebody who is extremely valuable to your daughter isn't welcome in your home. Um... That concerns me primarily because then she's going to choose him over you. 
for now at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not developing. It's not showing that you are willing to walk this road with her. But um and and continue to have an open relationship with her as she struggles with this sin. Um it's hmm. kind of saying, "Okay, you go do it by yourself without me." So that that's my concern. I don't I don't I don't know if I'm I don't think your concern's invalid. What I don't know is that your concern is always also right. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'll tell a story from uh, a question that was asked to me in a Bible study by a lady who had your same concern, Meredith, uh with something similar that had happened. And the story goes something like this. You know, my best friend, uh her daughter uh was down in Florida for college and at in the summertime, she called her mom and said, Mom, things are great. Um, uh, this next year, I'm moving in with my boyfriend down here, and things will be great. Her mom flew down, flew down, face to face. You move home now, or you never come home. Girl moved home, left the guy. So there's a place for what I'm going to have to call um, hard prophecy. Absolutely. You know, um, straight talk. Uh, and so this is where also like, I'm going to put it in the context of our daughters. We've taught our daughters that marriage is a communal idea. It is not something that, um, one should have forced upon them unless you're truly in a survival scenario. Um, and then hopefully you would understand that surviving as a people is pretty important. Uh, but until such a time, you know, if there is freedom to choose, if you can get your freedom from slavery, take your freedom, um, so uh, we're teaching our daughters to believe that, that no one's going to make them do anything, but that they're better off with like a team of thinkers behind them than off alone in the sea. And in this, the way that the Lord has actually engineered this is that their father's the gatekeeper, that he's the one that they will be able to bring any boy who's interested in them to so that they don't have to tell the guy no. Straight up, it's like an easy roadblock. Like, Dad, this guy likes me. We'll have him over. <laughs> Let's talk, right? And uh, uh, but then that's where, if like suddenly I have a daughter show up and she's like, "I've been sleeping with my boyfriend for two months. I'd like you to meet him." Yeah, I'll meet him. The thief wasn't he supposed to talk to me? And so he and I are gonna have words about what it means to be a man and what it means to take what is not yours. And now that he's taken it, we'll figure out what to do about it. But that he's taken in a way which will not benefit him or others and has hurt us. Now, again, I think I'm with you, Meredith, though, that I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i feed you. Now, here's a good point, though. So, little girl who's doing this now, my daughter, imagining you living with this man in adultery. You know this means, in Jesus' eyes, you're telling Jesus you're not a Christian now. Like You're saying, I don't care about Christianity. You're good with that? Because I'm not. And so I'll feed you. And I'll love you. And when I die, I'll weep. Because on Judgment Day, you'll be thrown into hell. And I'll sing Alleluia goodbye. And that's my faith. So that's why this matters to me more than just, oh, I love him. Or something. Okay. Especially because he's just getting his right now. Love of many has grown cold. But keeping that door open... How do you not shut the door to the future without shutting the door on, again, hard prophecy? I mean, if if you really are compelled by your conviction from the Bible to say 
this is my line. And I'm going to let God take care of it. You hand you over to Satan. If that's your context and that's where you're at with your daughter and this is, you know, you've been down this road and I just have to say, go your way. You know, I mean, that's understandable too. So I'm not going to tell you there's no place for it, but I think Meredith's kind of moment is sort of like, uh, well, I'll tell you another story uh, told to me by a pastor. I like this pastor. He's a good man, but I don't know if he's a great pastor. He's retired now. It's all past, but he's also divorced. And it's not that a pastor can't have been divorced in the past and become a pastor. And and there's there's a lot of other things about that. You can search me and divorce issues, etc. You see how hard a line I take on it. Um, but this pastor had been divorced, and he was telling me just over over drinks one time, uh, you know, the story of it. And you know, they had a rocky relationship. Uh, things were up and down all the time. It was a bilingual relationship, which is difficult, I imagine. Um, uh, and at some point, she was like by the door with a bag saying, I can't take it anymore. And he said, he took the bag, he sat down, he said, go. Now, at that moment, you can't take it back. You just can't take it back. No matter what happened, she left, it's gone, it's over, it, it happened, right? And again, um, could he have been a different person at that time and better acted for her? Yeah. Does the um, ramifications of his sin in that moment follow him? Yes. Um, was he removed from office? No. Should he have been? That's a different question. Uh, the reason I bring it up again is to understand that in a moment of heat, what you say to make somebody understand how you're feeling might not be what you really want to say. Because they might just go. So, um, I'll go back to uh, the vast majority of the work you do raising your kids is going to be from age 1 to 5. And then from age 5 to 12. And then from 12 to 18. And then from 18 to 25. And each step along the way, hands off. I watched a gentleman locally teach my son to use a, a chainsaw this week. I, you know, my heart is beating. I watch it. I said, okay, here's it going to go. It's gonna, he's, this kid's got this chainsaw. And he's telling him, like, most men can't handle this chainsaw. It's, a, it's six inches longer. And so he was, my guy's 10, you know. But, he, you know, he gets him on the tree. We felled the tree in the yard. He gets him on the tree, and he wants, like, these targets to throw, you know, knives at and stuff. So he's going to cut just, you know, uh, slivers off the tree. What do you call that? Um, slices. Slices off the tree. So he, he's he got you know, the man, Dave, ha- has the... Um, the chainsaw fully operating in his hands, but he's got my son's hands underneath his hands with him around. And they start working on the first one. And he's talking him through it. And then um, each step along the way, I watched like first his, his right hand just comes off, but it stays close. And gradually he's further away like this. And then he's coming off this way. His body's out of the way. He's just got one hand on it. And by, by the last one, Fetus is sitting there, just, just takes the whole thing off. The fourth one. Each step was a little bit closer to independence. Each step was a little bit more knowledge on what had already been established as a rhythm and a habit to build on. But this is where if the rhythm and habit you've built from age 1 to 5 and 5 to 12 is not the one you actually want operating at 16, it's too bad. It's too late. So now your tactics have to be based on where they actually are 
not on where they could have been if certain principles had been, you know, the life you lived at the time before. <laughs> Try not to sound mean about it, right? But like 2020 was hard on me. So, you know, if you're offended, it's on you. <laughs> uh, you got to repent. You got to repent. And so, you know, you find yourself in a place where your child isn't behaving the way you want your child to behave. Repent. It's not my fault. Yes, it is. They're your child. It's your body. They're your soul and spirit broken off and they're a reflection of you. Uh, so um, that means then again, see where they are now, what their capabilities are. And if in fact, this is the thing I said about, about you know, saying no to Jesus. I think one of the worst things that's happened in the last generation of the church holding on to power too long, as I was saying before, is that same generation wanting to believe their kids are still Christians when their kids are not. So far better to have your pagan daughter over for dinner, acknowledging she's a pagan, than to send her away believing she's still a Christian. Yeah, um, Don't make it easy on the demons. Make them have to deal with the Bible at the dinner table every Sunday afternoon. You know, uh, give them give them something that matters, and and let the influence of your holiness be present. Again, guarding the tongue against those words that are um, escalating. Yeah. Want to add any more to that, Meredith? Um, well, it made me think about uh, the possibility that a conversation might come up, <clears throat> talking about what they obviously, if it's a a lover or a live-in boyfriend or a live-in situation at all, um, their passion is burning within them. Mm. And um, what is the product of this passion? Children. And where should children be created in marriage? And so maybe it's time to start thinking about marriage. I mean, if they can't, if they can't keep apart, um, then our view of things is that you move forward. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, no, I think, I think you're right. So that like, but that the question is whether she'd be willing to, and it sounds to me, my guess is by the time a parent's writing this question in, um, the child isn't interested. And it, in my experience, quite often the girl would be fine with marriage, but the guy's not interested. And it's the guy she wants right now. Cause it's the guy that's having sex with her right now. And so they're glued together, right? It's just, they're in, um, and so, you know, the blindness to the future, um, nice little video you can find on YouTube called the economics of sex that shows how if you waste your time in these kinds of relationships while you're young, what you'll find is all the marriageable guys, the guys that actually will marry you and stay with you. They're married by 25 or 26. And so in your thirties, all you got is second and thirds of the same guy that you realize was just kind of, he's all cry. Okay. He was cute and all, but he didn't really care about like you, you know? So, um, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Well, I guess if you're going to take it to, you know, be serious about it and like, okay, well, your actions are showing that you guys are actually married. Right. Then um, <laughs> maybe that's the seriousness that the child, the daughter needs to start thinking about instead of being consumed by the world's view of uh, a boyfriend relationship or dating or what have you. Um, nope, this is what we what we believe mm. about intercourse and, and you have stepped over the line. So parents, um, I mean, if you're out there and you're a parent and you have a child that's under five and you're not talking about the process of finding a husband or wife and having a family and how that's what's good and what God wants for you 
and from you, and it's going to give it to you. And the prayers of the Bible are about your life in that environment. If you're not talking about it then, don't expect them to keep you in the loop later. right? Um, and so also, all the way up, you're talking about what the goal of it is. Why? What is dating? And that's a word in the family here. I mean, I have I haven't exactly forbidden the word, but it's pretty clear we don't use that word to talk about what our prayers are for eligible bachelors and um, the hope of a, you know, a valuable union. Um, instead, we talk, I don't know, we just talk about finding a husband, yeah, praying the, for the a husband. husband cre- created for you is what yeah. I've more recently been saying. Yeah. yeah. Or that you were created for, who you were created for. Yeah. What's up next? We got more. Okay. This is the Antichrist. Oh, yeehaw. Could you talk about the Antichrist? I gather that in general terms, the term is thought by by Lutherans to refer to the papacy. But it would be useful to know exactly why and to know about any other denominations spin on the who and the what of this term. Antichrist, did you want to speak to that nope, before I go? Go, go, go. Antichrist is used to denote an evil person who ushers in dystopia and the end of the world in many films and stories but theologically is a is opposition to um christ and christianity the key to the meaning of the term Woo! i love your viewers because they're so intelligent and their questions trip me up all right thank you annabelle so the end of that was basically saying that in popular culture the term antichrist means a villain in a story about the end of the world, right? So whoever's the guy that's trying to end the world in the story about the end of the world, he's the Antichrist if there's like angels and demons involved. Um, uh, so uh, and, and then so what do Christians really believe about this and how does this relate to the idea that uh, <clears throat> saying that the Pope is the Antichrist is the most ecumenically unifying thing a Christian can do today, um, which I am, I am one to say. Uh, I think it's important to emphasize that when Lutherans talk – about or Protestants talk about the Pope holding the office of the Antichrist or the Pope being the Antichrist. The idea is that he is in an office, which is an anti-Christian office, that as he holds it, demonstrates everything the Bible says about those who stand against Christ and his gospel, and that the Pope is the preeminent one of these in history. That across everything we know about the development of life on this planet, since Jesus ascended, the Pope fulfills all talk about the many antichrists and the man of lawlessness more than anybody else, even though what he does, fractally again, happens at smaller levels and in other places. So in a congregation wherein you have, say, five pastors, and the top pastor can never be gotten to by anyone but a certain inner cabal. And he runs everything with a powerful fist and he teaches justification by works because decision theology or I don't know what. Guess what? Office of Antichrist, right? So same problem, papacy. You could even call it the papacy. Papacy is patriarchy turned into Godhead. Yeah? The patriarchy is seeing the value of the king, the value of having a voice, a leader, a shepherd, who is given to govern the people with truth and wisdom, and turn it into an office of true glory and power without God. Right? You worship me, not God, kind of thing. You come to me as the mediator. 
uh, instead of realizing that I'm proclaiming Christ is the only mediator, right? And, and that distinction there is how the spirit of Antichrist will always work to obscure the kingship of Jesus and his, again, immediate lordship of you. You need no one to hear your prayers but Jesus, yeah? Okay, so with that said, I talk about the Antichrist and talk about the Pope and the many Antichrists um, is confusing for lots of reasons, actually. I mean, the history is kind of up and down and everywhere. So you asked, you know, what's the Lutheran position? Here's the thing. Before, like, 100 years ago, anybody who wasn't a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox person and a Christian that had any like Bible training or mainline connection to any church thought the Pope was the Antichrist. It was common knowledge. I mean, you, you would never elect a Catholic president in early America. That would be dangerous. That'd be putting the Pope in charge of the world or America at least, you know? So like that idea is really, really important. Um, that, and, uh, uh, so, Sorry, distracting myself with calling it so important. The other thing that then um, is important is all of our talk about this antichrist or anti-Christian is biblical language. But the the argument that Protestants and Catholics have had for 400 years isn't always making use of that biblical language as biblical language. Instead, it's making use of it as systematic language. What I mean by that is we take a Bible term. And we take it out of the Bible's context and we say in our systematic doctrine, that term means this. The Antichrist is this. The trick is, you got like more than one thing going on in the Bible with that term. So when we do all this talking about the end of the world Antichrist stuff, all that we do is obscure what the Bible actually says about Antichrist. As opposed to, again, the man of lawlessness, of which the Bible says there's only one of those. And that's the one that Lutherans are really generally talking about when we talk about the Antichrist. Can you see how that might be confusing? Yeah. So, but here, let me give you the text then and, and try to keep the text as clear as possible. The first one's First John 4. And honey, where did that, um, when it pops up at First John 4, what verse are we on there? It's on, ooh, it's on verse 1. Verse 1. Okay, yeah, there we go. It's right there at the start. So First John 4 says this, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. All right. So there you have that language, Antichrist, coined by John, not in the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, though he talks about the dragon and a bunch of other stuff there. But he, and he says, what is Antichrist? The spirit that denies right, that Jesus has come in the flesh. The spirit that denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. He's going to pick this up again in, in uh, 2 John. I don't have that prepped for you there, Meredith. But um, it says this in verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Same concept there. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we work for, but that we receive a reward, right? So here again, Antichrist, as John coins the term, is strictly to say someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is an Antichrist, is the Antichrist, is one with the flesh of Adam that does not believe. That's the initial coining of the term. Now, what happens when there's an office of the Antichrist or a man who acts with such unbelief, takes his seat in the church itself, proclaiming himself to be the name and voice of God? Well, that, that maybe is more like this man of lawlessness thing in Second Thessalonians. So let's flip over there. We just talked about this recently with Wolfmiller. We had him on because he's so much better at this than I am. He, he really he did the research better. But Second, Second Thessalonians, that one should be able to be pulled up there on the screen, Meredith. Um, and uh, it's just chapter 2, starting right at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Right. So um, Christ won't come without everybody knowing it happened. Don't be deceived by that. Uh, let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. That's that man of perdition I was talking about. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now, Let me call that one of the more confusing texts of the Bible as opposed to the clear ones before we go too off on it. People teach all sorts of stuff from this text. And again, it's like the only place where this man of perdition is specifically mentioned in this way. And so it is a confusing text. With that said, if you take time to really look at the grammar, carefully see the whole argument of the chapter, what's clear is that Paul has told these people that the Antichrist is going to be a specific thing and that there's currently a power that is restraining the Antichrist, the spirit of the man of lawlessness, from doing what he said, which is to, again, exalt himself above all that is called God, sit in the temple of God and show himself to be God. Okay, So what existed at that time that Paul could have said, this thing exists and it restrains him, but when this thing is gone, he will come and you know what restrains him, which is how you know he hasn't come. The argument from, again, all Protestants before we got kind of Pentecostal crazy recently and just believe whatever we want to believe about the Bible, um, everyone said that this was Rome, the empire, and that it was when Rome fell that the Pope was able to, as a Christian pastor, consolidate what has become the greatest and longest lasting empire, private empire, in the entire world's history. And he does so by exalting himself above all that is called God. His name is Papa, is it not? Uh, and uh, asks that he be worshipped. He kisses ring. He sits in the temple of God, or he claims to be, you know, the, the heart of the Christian church on earth. Um, and he shows himself that he is God. Um, well, miracles and whatnot too, right? Uh, he, how fast did John Paul II become a saint? Pretty quick. So the idea here again is that the spirit of Antichrist is a broad idea that is Jesus isn't God. And then from there, men exalt themselves in various ways. And the true spirit of Antichrist isn't the pagan out in the woods worshiping the goats. The true spirit of the Antichrist goes into the church and tries to take the image and name of Jesus and twist it 
for the devil's wicked ends, right? And so this is where, again, looking at history, it seems that the Pope having split with the East and then split the West and then split some more, and now he's promoting all sorts of weird stuff these days, maybe he fits this bill as like a great typological, prototypical, realistic, symbolic picture of what's being talked about here and, you know, what else what else does. <laughs> uh, and this would be why we're working on our little treatise, by the way. A little treatise, pamphlet coming your way eventually on this one. Um, I don't know that I got much more to say about that today, but I think, I think it sums up, like, the text at least. And it shows you how the goal is not to pin the tail on the Antichrist. And even saying the Pope is the Antichrist is just to call attention to how many unchristian things the Pope promotes, does, and says. And how ultimately what he is doing and saying is holding the Church of Jesus Christ, the faithful, in a captivity and bondage by removing from them certain clear realities. Teaching them to do things like what look to Mary as a co-redeemer, right? Uh, trust in their own works. I mean, how many, how many Catholics do you know are confident they're going to paradise? Ask them sometime. It's pretty sad. It's pretty sad. What we got next, love? James 1. James 1. Yay. Having trouble understanding James 1, verse 6 through 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its work, its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Do I need doubt-free faith to pray? I can't seem to get beyond, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. David. Right, so your your issue here is a little bit of an English issue again, because the word for doubt is not the common word for doubt. Um, so let's walk through the text from verse five forward and see if if I can show you what James is really exhorting you to here. Right, so if any of you desire or, or wants wisdom, first the idea here is that God is gracious, and if you would like to not be a fool, ask God. The God who gives, that's Jesus, right? So his point again is to emphasize that the God you're going to talk to who is Jesus, he is a giving God. He's not a God who withholds. He's not a God who's testing you right now. Uh, he wants to give you the wisdom. The wisdom, you will need tests to learn wisdom. <clears throat> but um, his goal is to impute it to you. Um, the God of all, no, I don't know what this word is. I'm going to look it up here. Um, ooh, straightforwardness, sincerity, right? Um, and that, ooh, Sorry, I'm going to look that word up in English here. Uh, da, da, da. Someone coming in and out? No. Six. Maybe like this my last God who gives all oh, liberally and without reproach. I see. Um, so the giving God not only just gives, but he gives lots and lots and lots. And then he isn't going to say, well, you didn't ask nicely. Right? So the idea here is if you would like to believe. If you would like to know the wisdom that counts all suffering to be joy, if you would like to be a Christian, ask God. Yeah. Um, now, you're worried about doubt while asking God because of the way the text comes across. So let's see here. Uh, he gives without reproach, and he will give it to you, it says. So ask God, and he will give it to you. Only let him not ask. Or let him ask in faith. There it is. So here we go. Aiteto de en piste. In faith. That is, with conviction, with belief. 
And then it has meden diakrinomenos. So meden, that's and not. And the diakrinomenos, that's the word being translated as doubting. Now, if I look that up in my dictionary right now, its primary meaning is to separate. Its secondary meaning is to make a distinction. It can go further. I, I, I'd have to go further into the, the uh, uh, BDAG lexicon. But so what just happened? The word's translated as doubt, but its primary meaning is to separate and to make a distinction. So clearly this isn't the kind of like, I wasn't so sure because I'm a weak sinner and I want to trust Jesus, help my unbelief doubt. This is the doubt in which you're not sure what you're even asking God for. So when it's like, dear Jesus Christ, will you please keep me celibate? Thank you. I'm going to go out to the strip club now. Right? So, so you asked without faith. Okay. You didn't ask for what you actually were trying to get. And, and this is what he's getting at. So the word then, uh, dia chronomenos, is um, without rejudging your decision, without rethinking your words. Um, don't have second thoughts about whether or not you can trust God's word to be true. So when you go to pray what God has told you to pray for, do so knowing to whom you pray and then stick with it. And that means then when the Bible comes in front of your face and it says, well, that behavior is foolish behavior. And you're like, well, that's what I want to do. Then you have your moment. <laughs> you have your moment. Uh, wherein you get to not be double-minded. For the diachronomenos, the double-thinking man, right? This, this is not about I'm doubting Jesus because I'm a sinner and I know I have shame. This is about... Even though Jesus says I don't have shame, I'm not going to trust him and I'm going to choose to have the fight with myself today, right? I'm going to give in and believe or, 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 or give in and not believe or I'm going to see the text and know what it says and not act on it. I'm going to know it says trust in me for daily bread, but I'm going to go worry about it anyway. Well, okay, so then you're double-minded, right? You trust in daily bread or worry, but they're different things, right? You don't hold those together. So for the double-minded person... Um, uh, he will be like a cloud driven by the sea, right? Um, and then something about the the wind, I think, right? Yeah, tossing of the wind. Because, right? Because you're like, I pray this altar, dear Jesus, help me stand firm. I walk outside. Someone says, you shouldn't do that. I go, oh my goodness, I shouldn't. You're right. And I just didn't stand firm. Now what am I? I'm being blown around because I can't just hold to the words I believe. So in one sense, all he's saying is believe the Bible. All he's saying is just believe the Bible to be true. Stick with that. Stop going back and forth. Don't debate the, whether a day is a day. Is a day really a day? After all, a thousand years. You know, hey, don't do that, right? Otherwise, you'll be tossed about four. Uh, it is not, uh, what is that word? Think, oh, that's right. Uh, for he must not think the man, that one, that he will um, lambano, there's a word that means take, receive, take, receive. It means receive, but you also grab. The one who asks for wisdom and then reads the Bible and then goes out and says, I don't think the Bible's true. He must not believe he will get anything from God. Right? That, would, that would be really foolish to think that. He has not chosen to take what God has chosen to give, which is the word. Um, he is dipsukas. I love this one. He's got two souls. He's got two souls. Akastatatas and pasais tais hadois altu akatastatas. That is like 
uh, histomy, which means to stand, and then to stand according to something. So it's like a solid foundation, and then it's like the alpha privative. So it's like it's like a solid foundation, the opposite of that, right? He will be that in all his ways, and that's the the ways of your pathways, right? So if you're going to look at the Bible and say, yeah, it's nice, but I don't believe it, and then go out and walk, you're going to have stumbling steps. If you look at the Bible and you believe it, you're going to go to walk, and even when you fall, it's going to be because you fell on the stone that crushed you so you would see Christ. No stumbling in Christ. Right? There's, only, there's only looking up to see him. And so your your issue here is you're importing what I might call the Lutheran pietistic nuance of recognizing you have hidden and heartfelt inner sin, including your tendency to idolize all things and doubt God's good for you. And now you're letting James talking about how your battle in that place is just to trust the Bible instead and how trust the Bible instead of yourself. And you're like, well, I can't do that because I find at war in me a law that's against against all this. But, but that's right. So trust the Bible instead of yourself, right? This isn't here to make you wrestle with your soul to find out if you really have the perfect spirit inside. This is here to encourage you that our path while we wait for Christ to return is a simple one. It's not easy, but it's simple. It is to know that it's done, that he has ascended, that you are his already, and that it is the simple wisdom of the Ten Commandments, life in a community, under, again, the the words, the red-letter words of Jesus, that that's not as hard as you think to do and believe unless you want to have everything the world promises you out of a fantastic American life, right? (laughs) You might not be able to have everything and read the Bible with your kids Every night. <laughs> it, might, it might not happen. But James is pretty clear. Like, well, you want to not be double-minded, then you need to have the mind of Christ being your mind. Uh, um, but it's, it isn't about, like, I just didn't believe enough when I prayed. I, God is the giving God. Jesus is the giving God. Ask him for wisdom and know that he will. And then when you get to the Bible, don't reject the Bible. <laughs> you know, Because that would be to reject the, the answer that he gives. Yeah. How are we doing? My love. We're past right, 11. We, we got anything else? One more. One more. Conflicted. Hello, Rev Fisk. I am a Lutheran school teacher oh, who yeah, works one. at a school that is in a church I am not a member of. I am still a member at the church I grew up in that has a traditional divine service. The church that my school is a part of has both traditional and contemporary services. I have been placed in a situation at my school where I either have to choose to transfer my church membership to the church my school is at, thus holding membership at a church with contemporary worship, or keep my membership at my current church and lose my job next year. I love my job, love teaching my students, and love being in a Lutheran environment, but feel that holding membership at a church that offers contemporary worship goes against my beliefs. I am torn between my need for true traditional worship and my love of teaching in a Lutheran school. I am in need of advice and guidance on this. Thank you. Blessings. The conflicted Christian. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing about it is, if I were going to like pony up and say, hey, St. Paul Lutheran Church, let's start a school again, after learning the hard way with all the LCMS, if you're watching, how easily our idolatry of schools can close a lot of our churches in just, I don't know, 20, 30 years, um, you know, lose half the pr- footprint on the planet. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, 
I'm not sure that I would want to necessarily start a grade school right now. But if I were in one or we had one, the only way I could ever imagine supporting it is if everyone who went to the church, everyone who taught at the church school, they would have to go to the church. I just have to. The school is to teach them to go to this church. Now, could they grow up and live across town and go to a different church? They could. You're assuming everything's still going to be here. You got a lot of assumptions about 30 years from now. Uh, what we want to do is raise Christians who will go to a Christian church. And, of course, we Lutherans know that when we say Lutheran, we mean Orthodox Christian. And so we should just say Christian more often and mean it. right? And so what we really want is people who will grow up and go to a church wherein the Bible is true wherein the word and sacraments are, are given according to their institution, wherein the creedal faith is clung to. Um, and I, I would agree with you that if a, if a church has, has swallowed uh, the Holy Spirit feathers and all with revivalism, contemporary worship, praise and worship, the problem is more the idea that you have to entertain people for them to like Jesus. Once you've decided that that's the way you're going to make your church work, it's like deciding that your school is going to make your church work. Like It really doesn't matter what you decide besides the Bible stories being taught by some man in front of everybody. Whatever else you decide it's about, that's why we're here together, Like that's going to be the thing that first works, second destroys you. So if you're in a church which is so, um, what, dual-souled, so as to not realize it's wanting to stand on a future in which it trains a generation to come with a bipolar confusion of why we're even here because worship is just what people feel like and we just disagree and if you don't like it, change it. I don't see how that game plan works long term since the thing you existed to pass on, you've already decided you're not going to pass on. Right? Now, with all that said, I despise the phrase contemporary and traditional. Despise. Devil's words. Devil's words. Don't help the devil. He, he's got enough like on his like plate to deceive us without us taking his terminology. So w- whenever that first buffoon said in whatever meaning, why don't we have something more contemporary? I wish someone had just said, can I have a Bible verse, please? Just one that tells me this is a good idea. All things to all people. You arrogant, selfish person. You're going to use Paul's sacrifice of his Judaism and his cultural heritage, whereas he leaves behind everything he loved about being on this planet for other people to advocate you getting the music you want in church. So that argument's divided and destroyed us for good reason, and we're reaping the fruit of our own arrogance on it. And, and those who would argue for traditional, that what we need is traditional worship, I don't think they've helped us anymore. What tradition are you talking about? Uh, uh, there are many traditions in many places, and some are good and some are bad. And frankly, every contemporary service is also traditional. They do the same thing every week, and they've done it for years. Nothing changes there either. The question is, what traditions are you picking up? So forget my church has contemporary worship. My church has traditional worship. What I want to know is, do they teach the Bible at your church? Do they sing hymns or songs written by Christians? 
Do they sing hymns and songs written by Christians who lived before you? If they're not doing that, how do they claim to be the church? Just the Bible? Okay, good luck. Have fun, right? Do you really want to work there? And now, again, that's not where you are, right? You're somewhere in the middle where, you know, the double-minded LCMS wanting to please the world, wanting to placate the mammon, wanted to keep our buildings and schools open, wanted to look like the big players of the world. They're, they're testing us here, you know? What are you willing to lose in order to believe what you believe? The people who came over here and built all this stuff you were afraid to lose, they had nothing when they started, and all they wanted was the Lord's Supper faithfully given to them. Left house, home, village. Now, I'm sure there were lots of bad motivations along the way, too. Uh, But, Lutherans, if we're going to sit here and argue about how some of us are idolaters and some are not, and we're going to try to do that with the language, contemporary and traditional, then we're just going to argue until they come and kill us all. The demons, right? Just suck our faith away. Close our churches. Because we can't even diagnose the status of the controversy. We can't even know what we're arguing about. We're too busy saying things like contemporary and traditional as if that has any meaning at all. The real question I have is, do you believe the words you're singing at church? Do you believe them? Do you you get fed by them? When you sing them, is it about trying to get the tune right? Or is it about what it says? And that question, every congregation should ask every week, frankly. So, um, what's the answer for you? I can fully understand what their position is. I also, myself, uh, would probably be on my way out, but I would have been before, you know, I, even when they had the, the contemporary for myself, I would have been planning to be somewhere else for a time until I was, because I know what vexes my conscience. And while I can, I can play that Crowder pretty loud in the, in the car. Yeah. I'll listen to it on the earbuds in the sanctuary. Put my face on the carpet when I walk in even, um, but it, it ain't a show. It ain't a show. This is a show, you know, and some good contemporary music, <laughs> some good Christian, what banjo. Um, that's a good show. What are you doing on Sunday morning? Are you there to consume something other than the bread and wine and the word? And if so, um, expect that to be the thing that destroys you. Yeah. So for your part, uh, you got a tough spot. They're doing something that makes sense to me from where they are, although I wouldn't join them as they do it. So there you go, right? Um, what do you do next? I would think that your lifelong membership at a local sister church ought to kind of be like a grant, literally grandfathered in. You would think, but again, uh, you got to talk with that pastor, right? Um, figure out what his plan is. What's his dream? Why is he doing this? What's the goal? The goal is probably to bind them together as a unit to deal with hard times, and that's really wise. So everything about what they're doing, I think, is really wise. And for all you know, he's doing this to gradually work more Bible and actual strong song into these other. I, I don't know, right? So you got to you got to talk, figure out what the plan is. You're on the staff. You're you're you have a right to know that, especially as they're asking you to do this. Um, that's tough. That's tough. Meredith, what do you, you got to have a little bit of word for her on this um, in terms of like. Mm, yeah, it is tough. It's, um, I like what you said about having seen the writing on the wall earlier and preparing your heart and mm-hmm. mind for a transition before getting to this point. I think too often we... Um, we think that our 
the the feeding of our faith is always going to just be something that's easy to come by and we don't always allow ourselves to recognize that the out when being put in a hard position i mean mm. today is a good example like if you were to have to travel across state lines to go to a confessional lutheran church so that you could stay at your per- present job um it, what if that border closed right what right. do you do do you stay at the job yeah, or do you... It's such unprecedented times. And not even everyone who you would talk to would, would believe that's a potential future. And yet it's the kind of thing that the Biden administration has floated as a potential future, right? And so you're right. Um, how could we have ever foreseen this? We, we, we built all of our infrastructure for a different future than we're in. And we already knew it was collapsing before we found out it was collapsing. It was the other thing. We've been trying to prop it up for 30 years with mission pledges and fund drives and VBS getting crazier. None of it's working. And so it's like, at some point, when did we just realize it's, it is falling apart? And so unless you can join that community for the rest of your life and say, this is my church, this is my school, I mean, I think that maybe is your answer a little bit, right? Um, you have to figure out where the community is that you can set your roots down in and have no qualms about where it'll be later. And absolutely. If right now there's a battle for how we worship going on in that place, you got two different places in one place. Uh, well, and also could she or he be a voice for uh, returning to absolutely uh, you said don't do contemporary and traditional so what was the option you gave us so i tend to use the word revivalism because charles finney the father of revivalism is the guy who most uh modernly put the new measure entertainments into practice and and so that's what he ran was revivals and the opposite of that the opposite of revivalism um yeah i i think i would just call it biblical worship all right, so if there's a, a small or even growing undertone in that congregation that the school is attached to of people you could rally with mm-hmm. to go back to right. um, biblical worship, yeah. then... Or to insert some biblical worship a, in um, the revivalism. Yeah, You could be a, a... A voice in that group. You could be a yeah. leader, even. Yeah, so until you talk to people, you don't know if you've got allies. And but you don't I don't know. know. Should a woman be leading that? If it is a woman, well, we a, don't a, know. That's a whole other question. This is a that's, woman or a man. I mean, I was in a conversation with someone else recently about about man and woman and our roles in congregations. And so here we are and we sit and we pine and we worry and we say, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And someone says, well, maybe we should not have had women start voting in there. You know? And we're like, oh, no, not that. That can't be it. Nope, nope. And, I mean, unless we're willing to really like look at where we were one generation ago in terms of power structures – what that one generation removed from our practice that's all biblically talked about by everyone who came before them, um, it's hard to say we're really taking the, the call to repentance too seriously. But in every place, that's going to be done, I think, by the Holy Spirit a little bit at a time. So so if this is a woman, mm-hmm. um, perhaps there would be a man who is hungering for biblical worship as well, mm-hmm. whom she could encourage and just be the... Not the sidekick of, but the person who just gives him a little round of applause. Or... Well, I think, I think right now everyone needs to find their cabal in their community. What I mean by that, a cabal is a small group within a small group, okay? And that can be bad if you're like secret cabals, right? But what you want to do is find the small groups within your community that are thinking like you are about 
various things. So in your congregation, again, yeah, the people who enjoy what you enjoy about the way the word and sacraments are presented there and the way that worship is leaned toward biblical worship there. Um, Because that's, again, what we should all be aiming for is biblical worship. Now, I want to say that just because I say biblical worship, does that mean one particular page number in the hymnal? Does that mean a hymnal? What it means is worship that accords with what the Bible says worship is, which is that man wants to praise Jesus because Jesus has saved us and Jesus brings us together in order to tell us this one more time and then stamp us with his body and blood. And in the context of that, we praise him for what is really done. Now, again, the problem is when we bring idols into that worship place and set them up in place of Jesus. And I contend that the music presentation of the revivalist entertainment movement has done just that. I'd also contend that in many high liturgical places which have resisted this movement but have put on another show of another kind, might have the same problem going on. Yeah? Because it's not a show. And that really should be all you need to know as you walk in, right? Like, does it smell like a show? Well, then we got 11 that needs to be dealt with, and the way to deal with it is one-on-one with people devoting yourselves to the prayers that are being put in front of you and actually praying them. Yeah? Not just letting them fly by and all that. It's not easy. It's not easy. They they have set us up for this. They destroyed our language first. Then they stuck our heads in the computerized sand second. And then they pulled the ground up from underneath us. And we're all like, what? Now we're arguing about stuff that doesn't even matter. Meanwhile, you know, who knows what's going on in terms of actual shutdowns? You know, Illinois, masks coming back on Monday. Woohoo. We'll see. <laughs> so uh, it's... If all you got in your church is someone who can play the guitar and the piano, and the only thing you got that there's nothing wrong with that. If you think that because people aren't coming to your church, you need a guitar and piano and then people will come to your church, you're the biggest fool there's ever been, especially right now. I got two stories in the area recently of congregations this year deciding to get rid of organ worship and go to blended worship. I know these are people with like, there's like 35 people and they're all over 65. And now, I mean, it's just, it's a bill of goods. It's a pyramid scheme. It's a lie. And that's why I get up on it. It's because like these churches, what they want to do, what they ought to do is sell a building, get together in one building where you got 90 people and call a pastor. Bunch of idolaters. Well, it's not necessarily what the instrument is that you're using. It's what the instrument is being used to sing about. And, and whether the instrument is taking the center. So when I think organ is bad, there's one time an organ's bad. You know what it is? When nobody can sing because it's just too loud, too slow, too I don't know what. And at that point, no one needs the organ. We should get rid of it. You know, when, when it makes you not sing, when the whole group can't sing, you're holding on to something for no good reason whatsoever. It's undoing the very purpose it was created for. So again, acapella, better than that. Yeah. Uh, so your question, again, is a long way from this, but it touches on that. Uh, it's such an important distinction. Uh, the biblical worship is a reception of Jesus and the praising of his name in response to what he has clearly said in the scriptures. And anything other than that um, really is idolatry. Uh, so you're in a place where there's a whole mix and mash of stuff because every public temple right now has a whole mix and mash of stuff. And we're all being individually called to repent in these temples. And we shouldn't expect all of it to be cleaned together. We're called to reform it. We're called to be part of the Reformation. But that means then looking around your congregation, do I have allies? Do I have any allies? Or if I stick around 10 years, is this just going to lose, 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 and I might as well have left? Because I know that's clear from people who do find themselves in churches that teach things they can't abide. The sooner they leave and find a church that teaches what they believe the Bible says, the better off they are. 
better off they are. Otherwise, just a lot, a lot of grind and shame for no good reason. Yeah. But it's your job. You love your job. You love the kids. One thought there. You have any? Uh, you'll love them in a different way. So don't worry about the job too much. Yeah. Now, I know if you don't got the right guy, you can't do that yet. So that might just be kind of a little vinegar. But um, there's lots of kids in the world. And uh, there's lots of parents who need help. In fact, no <laughs> I got a model. I got a business model for anybody who wants it right now, which is this. Um, you got a house, uh, 100 bucks a day. Watch your kids because you don't want your kids wearing masks at the preschool. They just put masks on everybody around. You want to open a daycare in Illinois right now is the time. Um, it'd have to be cash. That's eh, just me and my friends. you know. But, uh, man, 100 bucks, seven kids, 700 a day. Man, that up fast. Yeah. <laughs> People need it right now badly too. And that, that's the crazy thing about all that. So, um, yeah, D- don't assume that just because this is a place where the Lord has used you and brought you joy that uh, he does not have other children to put in front of you. And I guarantee you, your womb exists for that, right? And your husband, wherever he is, it is exists for that. Uh, so let that be your, your primary prayer in all of this. Um, yeah. Okay. Hey, y'all. Thanks for watching. I talked about Brief History of Power. Uh, that's the great show you can find on iTunes with Dr. Koontz and myself. Uh, he has an episode Q&A coming out. Should have been out yesterday. You know how that is. Things turn around. They come out soon. But that'll be coming up. And then we'll be back on uh, the regular uh, uh, show. What, what, <laughs> I just ran out of brain. Um, the regular show agenda soon after that. Um, Mad Christian Discord. Discord is an app which allows you to uh, interact and network with people all over the world, kind of the way Facebook does, but without Facebook being there to tell you what to think and do. Uh, the Mad Christian Discord is called Us the Chill. So you find the Discord app or go to the Discord website. And uh, once you have that all up and have your account, you search for Us the Chill, ask for entry, you'll be allowed to write on in, and you'll find all sorts of chat rooms, channels, whatever you want to call them, people, Christians, mad like you because we believe the Bible's true and everybody else is crazy for not thinking so, trying to support themselves in this present evil age. And again, you got a channel for everything. You want to learn Hebrew and get a little support from a pastor and figure it out? Yep, there's a place to ask those questions there. Do you want to know what's going on right now with the Biden administration, the Trump administration, how it all looks like the devil's in charge? Yeah, there's a channel for that too. So uh, come join us at the Mad Christian Discord. It's called Us the Chill in Discord. Uh, Patreon.com. That's how uh, Meredith and I here make this show go around. Uh, you can support the show by subscribing to it there. That's the Saturday Morning Chill again. Um, I think that's all the new stuff. No, I haven't mentioned Mad Christian Mondays either. There is a newsletter that is the only source of truth. That's the only news that you need. You need to listen to no one but Mad Christian News. In fact, they know all things, and even the government of New Zealand gets their calls directly from Mad Christian Mondays. Um, not quite that, but what we do at Mad Christian Mondays is we try to filter through as much of that white news as possible and bring you links to first source articles so you can know what's really being said out there by the people who are actually saying it and not just the third, what, third referend, uh, third bent filter through the AP that you tend to get in all the other sources. So uh, Mad Christian Mondays, you can find that at riffus.com slash newsletter. All right. Did I forget anything, my well, friend? Well, if somebody wants to become a son of Solomon, how would they do oh, that? Oh, good stuff. I want to do that so earlier. Sonofsolomon.net is the way you would do that to begin with. Just go to sonofsolomon.net. Everything is there. It's a simple website. It's easy to navigate. This also goes for you daughters of wisdom who would like to join us and have something for the ladies because certainly Sons of Solomon is a men's movement intentionally. So, But since nothing is better than when brothers dwell together in unity, it always helps when the sisters are in unity praying for that to be a good thing. Yeah. So um, sonsofsolomon.net. Go there. 
and uh, it will show you how to do it. It is the kind of thing where if no one else is around you, we still want you to grab on and be the first son of Solomon where you are. Uh, it is a way to fight back against the darkness by adopting the fourth commandment as your moniker, your knowledge of your present vocation through the certainty that you're a son of God and Jesus sent to be where you are, different than the world, light in the darkness, salt in the decay, and all this, right? So again, just sonsofsolomon.net and then read from there. You will not be disappointed with this discipline. I can promise you that one. Yeah. So, ah, yes. There's a lot of good things going on behind the scenes. We're going to leave all that for later. It's just summertime still right now. Labor Day coming up. I guess I could announce this. If uh, Saturday mornings, we're inside right now, did you notice? <laughs> and so coming down to visit Saturday morning, party in the, in the driveway, you still can. You just might not run into us right away. But uh, Labor Day, Monday after, a week from Sunday, tomorrow, uh, we do have open invitation to 42 Square Gardens, 3 p.m. That's where we are, 4242. Lakeside Drive. us in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, we have an open invitation to a Labor Day party for Sons of Solomon Muster. Yeah, and that means anybody who wants to come can come. Not just Sons of Solomon. Now uh, there's a, there's a lake there. There'll be a barbecue with the grill. You got to bring your own meat. You got to bring a dish to share. We might have a lot of dishes show up. That'd be fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's gonna be a good time. There's people from all over coming to this thing. And uh, if you're within an hour or two and you got nothing else going on Labor Day, I don't know why you wouldn't want to hang out with Mad Christians. And Sons of Solomon and Daughters of Wisdom, praying for Jesus to come back. We'll close with Compline in a fire pit at the end of the night, so bring your hymnal if you do come by. And... That's it. I have an ending that I usually say, and that's good. That's good. But I, I, I really like Meredith. Um, I really like Meredith. <laughs> and then from there, I really like having Meredith on the show. So I will say this. It's in, in line. Sometime this fall, we're going to be splitting Brief History of Power and Saturday morning chill on the podcast feed. So if you listen audibly, there's going to be two feeds now. Brief History of Power is going to kind of just take off on its own. It's doing real good. Right? But at that point, what we're going to do is we're going to rebrand Saturday morning chill as something that we've been working toward for a while. Um, everything's going to stay just like you got it right now. Uh, question, answer, all that. But Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith is indeed coming. Uh, and uh, I'm excited about that because... I mean, you know this, Meredith, that I've been like trying since the Worldview Everlasting reboot, if we call it that, to figure out how I could make the show in a way that I enjoy the show, that I feel that it's sustainable. And you know this has everything to do with adrenalization. Right. right? And what I do enjoy is that since you've been on the show, the manic expectation of myself that I have is decreased. Oh, yeah. And I'm really hoping that that bodes well for the show as a whole over time. I think it will. Um, uh, and I, what I mean by that, um, there's a real value in how quick and excited and talky I can get. <laughs> but there's also going to be some real value in slowing it down. And, uh, you know, as we go, as we go, slowing down the ending here just so I can not adrenalize on the way out. And I can be thankful that you were here to join us today in these scriptures. And whether it's today or, you know, many years from now when you're watching this, uh, that you were here with this thing that doesn't pass away. Uh, the, the crazy magic of the internet capturing forever. No, just for a while as digibytes, you know, this, this information, this sound, this light that you're seeing. But what has it been? It's been so much more. It has been the word who became flesh and dwelt among us inhabiting my heart and my mind so that my tongue will confess 
into this nonsensical camera device magic thing. <laughs> you know, what is true and bigger than it. And you hear it through whatever sound, electrical weirdness you got going on out where you are. Here it is. Jesus is risen. Yeah? You are paid for. And that makes you immortal now, and he's not going to be long anyway. Thank you for being mad enough to believe that's true. Because, as you know, like, it's pretty sane. <laughs> and everything else is just a little too crazy. So you go ahead and keep believing what you know to be true. Don't be double-minded about anything the Bible says. Let the Bible be so certain that you're willing to judge the world and even the angels on the basis of what it says. And you will not be wallowing in the muck with those who have no hope. You'll be look, lifting up your head all the more as you see that day approaching. Yeah. Rock on, hallelujah. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please?